People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Happy Monday, everyone. You're with Greenwashed. I'm Jaspreet Bopperai, here with my co-host Don Nicholson. And thank you so much for joining us this morning. Yeah, great to have everyone back on, on board. And you're looking great, Jaspreet. Yeah. Bundle of energy. <laughs> <laughs> Easy week last week, it must have been, I think. Uh, trust you to Robert and Don. <laughs> it, it has been an interesting week. And talking of interesting weeks, the next one is going to be really interesting. This is our, the last show before the elections. Next yeah. Monday, we will know one way or the other which way New Zealand is heading. The countdown's on, all right. This time next week, you may know. Um, Saturday night, uh, there's people will say that it's going to be very close. And there's others will say that it's a landslide, so it'll be well and truly clear. But who knows how it's going to be. But one one thing that intrigued me over the weekend was to l- learn that there's been around just under 400,000 vote, votes taken in already. And, of course, you heard me last time saying how I get grumpy with people that vote early, but they've given that right, so can't blame them. I suppose it's a convenience for some people who are really resolute on their choice. Yes, it is. But I, I haven't made up my mind yet. I think yeah. I, it's pretty obvious who I lean to, but... um. You know, I'm I'm going to vote on the day. Likewise, likewise. Mm-hmm. I think at this point it's worth mentioning this article that came out from RNZ the other day or the weekend, saying that some rural voters may be caught out by polling booth closures on election day. The article says more than 2,600 polling booths are being set up across the country, 800 of which will open early, but 300 of them will not open on polling day, most of them in remote locations. So yeah, it might pay to have a look around. Where are you polling? Is your location open? Especially if you are, you know, remote rural living somewhere in the sticks like I'd, I am. It's it's. I've never heard of that before. So thanks for alerting me to that, um, Jaspreet. And thanks for, you know, for listeners um, being alerted to that too. Uh, gosh, that seems odd doesn't it? it polling booths open up till now or during this week, but not open on polling day. What the heck yeah. is that about? 
I I have no idea. I just read this and I just thought uh, that's really, really odd. Why would, if you are opening polling booths, why would all of them not be open on the day of the election? Oh, that's, that seems weird uh, to me, but um, who knows? There will be people in authority have made these decisions. Maybe it's around cost. Maybe people are worried about the cost of having people at these um, polling booths on the day. Um, I doubt that's the issue, but yeah, gosh. Yeah. yeah. So please, if you are living remote, don't count on your polling booth being open mm. that day. I'd rather be safe than sorry and uh, cast your vote in time. Whichever time you do. Right. Uh, listeners, Don and I, we need to put an apology in. Last week got really hectic and we were unable to do justice to the feedback we've been getting. So I think let's uh, get into that, Don. Yeah, well, we've had lots of feedback and thanks for all the people that do put um, their comments back. And the first one was, we love that country music. Yeehaw. Yeah, and, and I know that one. That's Blind Joe. Yeah, we will not comply. Um Fabulous song. Fabulous song. Go and have a listen. If you haven't listened to this one, Blind Joe, we will not comply. He's got a few other catchy ones, one of which I hope to be playing today. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it'll captivate that one. Listen to the words. Listen to the words is what I'd say. They're quite critical to the to, uh, to that song. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there is a few other messages. Uh, towards the end of last week's show, Dawn and I asked what others think about the fact that Fonterra is now appointing or has asked for people to send in nominations for councillors to fill the diversity gap it has seen. And this has to be applicants who identify as a different nationality than a Kiwi and as a different ethnicity from NZ European slash Pakeha. So there have been a few in that of, you know, what they think. And some of these messages have come without names. Our text number is 2057. I'd be appreciative if when you text us, there's a name there we can attribute. But it seems quite a few think the same way. What it do does. You there's yeah. quite a few comments that are in, in support. I imagine there's people that don't agree with us, but that's fine. Uh, at least hmm. we're, we're good to it's. We, we're, we're here to hear both sides of the story, but we put it out there. And so it's really great that people have given feedback. Uh, you know, you know, our view, um, yep. board position should be merit based. And that's about it. Best Nothing man else or counts. woman for the job. Nothing else counts. Mm. Somebody else has written, it's just a trend, virtue signaling and so on. And yes, we, we've seen more and more of this, haven't we? We've seen our biggest supermarkets countdown. It had late last year, under some mistaken speak about the fact that it is going to have a certain percentage of people in its boards of a certain ethnicity. Mm. Uh, then we also have had people who have been responding to the other discussions we've had about climate change and gender ideology. Jill and I spoke about that a couple of weeks ago. And climate yeah. change is just well. money laundering and scaring our kids. We make no apologies for focusing a lot on climate change. I know that it probably drives some people crazy, but it's everywhere. It seems that it's only risen to people's awareness in the last two or three years since the COVID um, regime came to play, uh, came into being. And so 
yeah, why wasn't for people like me? It's been around for twenty five years. I don't know why it's new and unique to some, but it it clearly is. And mm-hmm. maybe they're um, just waking up. So, you know, we're obsessed by it, or I am at least. Um, <laughs> I definitely want this thing kicked for touch because not one New Zealander knows the cost of this to them and this year, next year, the year after. Not one. Uh, so it's all like running blind. You just pay, comply, and pay. Toss money into a great black hole. Exactly. And we're going to be looking at climate financing. And um, yeah, that will have your eyes watering when you see all of where the money goes. Yeah. But um, There's another listener who's popped in a message saying that, and we wonder why our kids have mental health problems. All of this madness is being installed at a young age. Somebody else echoing those same thoughts. Don and just read, it's brainwashing our kids at primary school first. That's that's really sad, you know, at the times when my eight and a half year old made mud pies this weekend, literally, you know, when we that's all what we want our kids to be doing at that age. And this is where they are going. She did decorate them with daisies. So she's, she's gotten into fancier <laughs> stuff now. But uh, yeah, let kids be kids. How, how oh, hard look, is that? Look, and I remember my mother um, with my daughter making mud pies in her garden with her. I mean, it's a lovely thing to see. Um, of grandmother or parents with their kids and even seeing their kids playing with nature effectively. Um, really funny. Yeah, but so if you are telling nice me, you know, at age eight, they need to understand, and this is from the curriculum, they need to understand gender as a social construct. <laughs> my answer is always going to be poppycock. Yeah, I think there's more and more people waking up to that. Uh, and, you know, that the, the, the there was a que- I went to an ACT Party um, uh, pre-election meeting in Invercargill a few weeks ago, and I put it to the ACT guy. I said, are you okay um, with having transgender people um, uh, reading nursery rhymes to kids, especially coming to school to do that? And he tried to deny for a moment that it existed. And he yeah. also said, but where it, where it does exist is in the public library where people have got the free choice. And that was his out. Um, I just thought it was weird, but he, he certainly got roasted by the other people in the crowd. So I think he'll go home with a different opinion. Amazing how they're all for free speech when it is speech that they they prefer. I, I'd uh, like to pop in something that Jill has always mentioned whenever this, the drag queen speaking to uh, reading stories to children comes up. She's always said, just read, be right here. They are cross-dressers. They are transvestites. They are not transgender. Uh, and they are getting a kick out of this. And we are trying to get our five-year-olds, eight-year-olds, six-years-old to be inclusive about sexuality. Why? Those kids mm-hmm. have no idea what all of this is about. So, yes, often they are cross-dressers out there. And uh, uh, just like Don, that's the way I'm inclined. They have no business being there. Let that be in clubs where there's adult entertainment. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we've also yep. got a few messages here, Don, about uh, the discussion we had with uh, Professor Peter Rudd from Australia last week. Yes, and uh, a lot of people gave me off offline comments mm-hmm. about it too. Um, fan- they thought it was one of the best interviews we've done, and well, I thank people that make those comments because none of this is easy for those of us that aren't involved in the sciences. We um, we try and do our best. We're all lay people trying to to get the best out of our guests. And people said that was just such an authentic interview. And thank you very much uh, for doing it. So Peter was the most unassuming guest um, and so gracious. So great that people liked it. 
So for someone who hasn't listened, we had Professor Peter last week talking. And Peter, after well over three decades with a particular university in Australia, was kicked out basically because his views about uh, certain things, though the pretexts ultimately were different for the for the court action, but his views were about the coral reef and how all the money being poured into conservation was essentially money down the gurgler because he said the coral reef is perfectly fine. And uh, we've got a few messages here. Someone has uh, echoed Peter's words that the coral is like a weed of the ocean, like our pines. Cheers. Thank you for that. It is money laundering through the blind. Another one that has come, and this is Dawn last week when I spoke about the fact that I was looking for science curriculum for my children uh, for the next term. That is effectively beginning today at schools, even as a homeschooler, we sort of try to keep to those. And uh, Sarah has written, I just breathe. I was listening this morning and I looked up the House of Science you mentioned. Funny, their ambassador is a certain Dr. Susie Wiles. No surprises, really. Keep up the good work with Dawn. Yeah, it's amazing how the same people figure everywhere. Some people call them the usual suspects. <laughs> Some cynical people call them the usual suspects. <laughs> Funny. Uh, yeah. But but isn't it interesting? Just while we're on that, I was reading uh, a document today from what was the facts, the KPIs. Uh, and we talked about this early in our show, uh, earlier shows about the truancy in schools, uh, in, in New Zealand schools, primary and secondary at the moment. And I don't know if you saw that, Jasper. But the occupant, you know, the rate of children not going to school and teenagers not going to school now, um, that means 90% of the time, so nine days out of 10, has now down to 40, there's 40% attendance. No wonder um, our um, skill skill levels at our um, school leavers and, and our school pupils is falling like a stone if people aren't attending the teaching institutions. Or does that mean that... They're being taught at home like you're doing. <laughs> I, I don't. For just for comparison, in your times, what was the attendance level like? What was the expectation then? Uh, 100%. I, I, you know, we had, um, you know, every morning there was a roll call. And certainly if you were off school, you were at the odd one out. Um, you were definitely sick uh, and staying home because you were sick. That was it. I never took a day off school unless I was sick. Right. And I'd say parents would have to do that. You know, I, I remember my mom also suspiciously looking at us, double checking. You sure you have fever? You have yeah, to had, go. Yeah. Had to, the parents had to write a note mm. to, to, to say, um, you know, Don's not coming today because he's ill. I mean, they would never, my parents never would have um, let me throw a sickie. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So oh, that was good to get that feedback. Uh, Susie, she pops up everywhere, does Susie, doesn't she? Yes. The yeah. other guest we had, and uh, quite a very interesting guest, was Roger Beatty. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He um, uh, he certainly entertained, didn't he, Mister Wekawoo? He is, I think, you know, a serial entrepreneur with all that he's doing, mm. and continues and to do. Continues to do too. So look, yeah, I didn't. I'd, Encourage people to go back and listen to these interviews, Peters and, and Rogers. If they missed them last week, they're all there on replay. Get the uh, if you've got the app, they're very easily found. 
Yeah, Tony mm. Coppard wrote in about uh, wanting to know about Roger Beatty and his wind turbine. Heard about Roger this morning on your radio show, but would like to know more, please. Tony, I think we have sent an email to you. Please uh, get in touch if you still need some more info. For listeners, if uh, you want to see a bit more of their work, here's a plug for uh, Roger's business, wyld.co.nz. This is their person, Marino. Mm. It's weird that uh, Don has told me he swears by. Wild. Yeah, it's, very, it's very good. It's very good. Wild with a W. Wild uh, with a Y. W-Y-L-D.co.nz. Yeah. Right. So what's next? Mm, this oh, one. What's this I, one? I, I'd, I'd like to address this one. This is, again, I don't have a name to attribute it to. I have a phone number, but uh, here goes. Hi, Jess Preet. Uh, listen to you talking in the Jillian. Although there was lots of good stuff, I feel the message was a bit mixed rear gender ideology. On one hand, they were worried about all the organizations that captured the children into, you know, this confusion. Yet they, meaning me and Jill, two weeks ago, we celebrated Georgina Byers, who was a prostitute at one stage before becoming a politician and a mayor. You cannot have us both ways. You, like you can't legally drink until a certain age, but then it's okay. You shouldn't have sex until 16, then it's okay. You shouldn't change your gender till you're adult. All of these are flawed arguments because all of those things can cause harm. Uh, the horse has bolted because the stable wasn't sure, uh, secure. Morals and integrity have fallen off because boundaries have become so incredibly fluid. Just live your own truth so we can't complain. Uh, I'd, I'd like to respond to this. Now, Jill and I spoke about gender ideology, and I believe uh, if you go to the RCR Facebook page, you'll find a small clip about Jill talking about various organizations that are pushing this, both uh, you know domestically and internationally. And uh, we were speaking about you know the constant, constant narrative about uh, how transgender rights are being trampled upon and how poorly we are doing and the conversion therapy ban, which incidentally I agree with, but the point was that the Human Rights Commission found not a single instance of conversion therapy in New Zealand going back two decades. So what was the point of the law? But we ended the segment talking about Georgina Byers simply because we wanted to speak about the fact that we are not against transgender rights. And the fact remained that Georgina Byers regardless of her background, rose to public office on her own steam, despite being a minority, nearly three decades ago. So for all these people pushing this agenda, asking for constantly me, 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 more funds here, a bit of funding there, certain laws there, self-ID here, there's a woman who did this all on her own 30 years ago, and you're telling me today transgender rights are in danger in New Zealand? So that's the point where I came from. I personally, I have no comment on what people or what Georgina was doing in her career or, you know, for her livelihood before she came to public office. Obviously, the constituency where she was elected thought her good enough to do the job. And for me, that's all that matters. I will not bring anything else. Uh, if, if she did her role that she was elected to do well, that is where my, you know, that's where my interest ends. I am not looking into anyone's personal lives, sexuality, genders, livelihoods, and sitting here and making a moral judgment of how 
they made their money was it you know uh, well was it good or was it not accepted so so that's where i'm from well it made your case well and uh you know i look back at georgina's life and she's passed away but um she certainly had to face a lot of headwinds to get to the position she was in and i know the uh, people of south wire rapper i think it was carterton area voted her in as mayor and then an mp uh, or vice versa and um did did the job so um yeah that's where we leave it yeah that's did where we job. leave it so it it is it does it doesn't matter to me that uh, her past she was a prostitute who rose to public office my <laughs> only interest was when she rose to public office did she do a good enough job and obviously if the people who elected her saw that you know she was fit for it and that's it go on merit nothing else don't ask for a reservation don't ask for a quota don't ask for privileges just go ahead and do it it's sadly the next uh, comment we got back was uh, in reference to me calling the legal profession um basically <laughs> prostitutes um in some way because uh, and now you've sort of this is not wasn't a good segue into this i know but um someone said political prostitute a prostitution is the term a prostitution um we certainly don't mean that in regard to georgina that's for sure this was in regard to my accusation that the legal profession knows how to milk um money out of clients and uh find a cause now that's not for all legal people either but it's just we were we were referring to the lawyers for climate action yeah yeah and, so let's um, let's keep things in context here mm, yeah mm. there's the next one is for you don from rosa I, I agree. Vote on the day. Um, yeah, I made the comment that we should only vote on the day. And uh, if there's any voting that comes in after the day for perhaps from overseas, it should all still be voted for on the day, put in the voting boxes and counted on the following Monday if necessary. But vote on the day. I cannot take this early voting. I know you've made your mind up. A lot of people, the, the 400,000 have made their mind up. But you know, there's a lot of things happening with the politicians at the moment. Uh, I certainly, this, you know, they can sort of have some foot and mouth in the next week and upset <laughs> the apple cart. So I certainly can't vote prior to the day, but you know, obviously 400,000 people have and a lot more before um, uh, next, next Saturday. So, yeah, it's a bit like I'm very much negative to um, public polls in the month of an election. Now, call me in a, a control freak. I just think um, the the bias around the polling that's going on it's and the, the margins of error are that do the public polls influence people the way they vote? Well, when I read that 12% of people going into a voting booth have no idea who they're going to vote for, I think public polls do probably influence them. So yeah, I'm, I'm watching the Australian uh, referenda vote as well. And the the politicize you know the absolute bias that's in some media um platforms over there is incredible i don't know how we get uh above all this stuff and have legitimized uh, elections because to me these elections where you actually have all this almost advertising for um you know a one line can alter a, a, an election you know if someone just gets one word out of place the the media are, are, are on it um i can't take it i just wish these people would um, <laughs> diminish their output in the month leading up to an election. And I know that sounds very authoritarian, 
but I think it's the other way. You're laughing at me and you, you're thinking, Don, you've lost it here. You're not on the I, right way. I, I feel like passing my cup of chamomile tea across the screen to you, Don. <laughs> <laughs> right, I'll, I'll take the next one. Dear Jaspreet, thank you so much for taking one for the team and sitting through that UN conference. This is the five-hour one I sat through uh, last Friday by the yeah. United Nations Association of New Zealand. The in-person uh, seminar that was going to be in Wellington taken uh, online because of security concern from conspiracy theorists. So she says, thank you so much for taking one for the team. I can't believe you didn't throw things at your computer and break it during the process. Chamomile tea, chamomile tea. <laughs> I'm pretty sure my blood pressure would have given me a heart attack if I had to do that. Uh, so also he gave us an inside story after what happened. Keep up the fantastic work. I feel like you and all the Asia folk are akin to French, the French resistance during World War II. And I'm so grateful. Arohanui, Libby. That's so kind of you, Libby. Thank you. But, you know, wild, wild dogs couldn't keep me away. Wild horses couldn't keep me away. It was uh, something, you know, I paid 30 bucks for the privilege, plus GST or whatever it was. It was certainly interesting to get a few clips from that one. And uh, what stands in my mind is, of course, the World Health Organization chief, Tedros, zooming in, talking about the fact that we'll have a legally binding international health treaty. So suddenly we lose control here to an NGO like the United Nations taking over our healthcare systems. Uh, what also echoes in my mind is uh, the ex-reserve bank governor, Dr. Alan Bullard, talking about the fact that uh, New Zealand needs to be ready. We need to be ready, this Southeast Asia Pacific region, for millions of climate refugees. Mm. And uh, I wonder where you're going to house them, put them, feed them, Oh, of course, the uh, the banking fraternity and the um, the building fraternity and the planning fraternity will be having a field day with all this, uh, you know, that's new demand. It's going to create masses of um, opportunity, uh, as any uh, excess demand does. You know, those people do well out of it. So you can see how the stimulation of an economy will happen with all that mass migration. Um, and to hear uh, on, on the other side of it, Jasper, do you think we're sort of the petri dish for, for the South Pacific, for the world, even showing how it can be done? How this this climate refugee status will just, um, you know, an open door policy for New Zealand will work well. Yeah, the biggest UN lab rats in the world on small, isolated island with a captive population of five million at the bottom of the world. And I think why I why I didn't think of all this in two thousand and eight when I came to these shores. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, look, just on that, I know we don't want to be miserable and uncheery about it all, but um, you look at look at what's going on in Europe, uh, the mass migration that's gone on through through Italy to Germany, over to the to the UK, up into Sweden. The social problems that are happening in those biggest cities is just awful, and I, I, yeah, it's, it's miserable to watch. But go and watch a program from Eva Vladenbroek, uh, who's done some videoing in Berlin, Hamburg, Dortmund, and uh, somewhere else, Frankfurt. And it's just depressing. Um, downtown San Francisco, same. Uh, Two million people crossed the border this uh, last year, or this year, Biden in 2020. Oh, no, we're not going to ever build a wall. We're not going to build a wall. And closing down what Trump was doing stopped it. And today, 
or in the last few days, he said, we're going to build a wall. He's going to do another 30 Ks. And he hid behind the, uh, well, yeah, the the appropriation for the for the dollars and cents to to build the wall was done under Donald Trump's time, so he couldn't back it. He couldn't back off. Well, he's actually let two million people through the southern border this mm. year. Mm. Illegal aliens. Um, what the heck is going on? And keen uh, listeners and uh, subscribers to the RCR Foundation Club, there's a plug for the. Foundation Club would have seen uh, in the morning emails that you get each weekday, one of those you would have noted that uh, there was this article about New York hospitals overwhelmed by migrant needs. And mm-hmm. this this news story that uh, NBC News US has done, where it spoke about the fact that in one particular hospital, that their correspondent, Julia Ensley, visited, where migrants make up a quarter of the patients. And this is the Bellevue Hospital. And this is what's happening across the U.S., especially the southern states. Infrastructure is at creaking point. And, of course, the cultural issues that arise with this, because, let's face it, we are not all the same. Much as we would like to be, we are not all the same. We come from different worlds, different mindsets, different value systems, all of that. And to think one can just assimilate overnight. I don't think so. It it doesn't happen. There are times I can say, Don, even today, there there'll be instances, you know, in a week or everything. But then something happens, you'll be like, right, I'm double thinking some some encounter I'm having here, thinking, right, this is how I do it. And that's not to say one considers oneself different, but it's just that, you know, 30 years of my life I spent in India. And I spent 14 years here. Well, there's a giveaway. I'm 44 today. Uh and there is different ways of looking at the world, different worldviews. Yeah. And yeah, there's conflicts. Yeah. There, there's conflicts. And of course, it's almost like it's around, in, in this instance, uh, putting so many people in so quickly is around destabilizing, destabilizing institutions that those countries that were sovereign countries um, were, were we're used to and it seems to be breaking down those institutions as part of the part of the caper and i don't like it i don't like it one bit but again so our lord and over overseers at the united nations there was a statement from them on the 2nd of october speaking to reporters in geneva on her first official day as the head of the international united nations organization of migration amy pope said migrants were people first and should not be seen as a problem. Countries are better off thanks to migrants. And it's important to realize and recognize that they bring, what are they doing? They lead to thriving economies and all of this. And whether it's climate change or whether it's unable to find a future at home, more and more people are looking to find a better job in the world. Well, the US would know how many countries how many countries? I mean, I am sure Hillary Clinton would have something to say. I that there's a war, warmonger if I ever knew one. When you destabilize other countries and then the people from those countries make their way to your doorstep, the chaos mm. that ensues. Perfect storm here. Perfect storm. It's it's above my pay grade, but so my um my opinion is uh, just as I've said, it, it seems to be all about destabilizing what were once sovereign countries yeah sovereign countries yeah having this borderless world it just drives me nuts 
the United Nations has literally pushed for more of this. Amy Pope, the uh, International Migration Organization chief, and she was asked whether the U.S. President Joe Biden's decision in September to allow some 470,000 unregistered Venezuelans to work legally might fuel further migration, the IOM chief responded. If there weren't jobs, the Venezuelans wouldn't be here. And it's called for, the UN Migration Agency has called for more regular, realistic pathways for people before highlighting the findings of a World Bank report that underscore how migration is a powerful force for poverty reduction in the host countries. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I don't know how you research that so quickly, Jasper. You're making me look inept here, but well done. Oh, the last the last week has been all all you and Don. Come on, you you get into the stuff, but you you get into it from a more cultural Marxism, mm. you know, perspective. And I really enjoyed that at the meeting in Otauta this week that you chaired. Oh, that was intriguing. All right, I mean, I hadn't done any really public speaking for a long time. And when I got up to the podium there, and by the way, this was a groundswell um, meeting for for Western Southland, which is a new chapter they're setting up. And I had no idea what I was going to speak about. But I followed a colleague who had um, talked about how their freshwater plans would impact farming in Southland and uh, how they would comply or not with them. And of course, uh, my story was after about an hour, I hope people got out of it. It was around uh, take back control, have ma- maintain authority over your property. Don't give in to these people that are just constantly wanting more and more uh, interest in your property. And that's what it is. I mean, I uh, we're talking about freshwater farm plants, um, mandated ones. I made fresh uh, farm plants when I went farming in 1982. And the first thing I did was get a big aerial farm map, make sure I knew exactly where the gullies and things were, fenced off all the waterways, built shelter belts, did soil tests, didn't over-fertilise. I mean, just basic common sense stuff. Now we need a regulator to do all this thanks to David Parker and others. So let's hope by this time next week, uh, if there's a change of government, all this goes out the window. But I'm not holding my breath because I'm not hearing it from the main um, op opposition party today is not really saying they're going to get rid of these regulations quickly in the first hundred days. Don't know. Don't know. But anyway, it was a great meeting. And um, but in the end, I wasn't confident that I'd encouraged enough people just to challenge their own thinking about complying. Now you have the saying, comply till you die. And you know, it's a it's a, it resonates with me. No, Don, you you undersell yourself. I think you did. Considering that that meeting began at seven, it's still lambing. And for a few, there's still a bit of, you know, tail end of carving to get through. Mm. The fact remained that no one left that meeting till 10 after, you know, a cup of tea was had. I have never seen farmers, 60 of them sit for three hours in the evening, well past their bedtime, seven o'clock to 10 o'clock, and then, mm. you know, head home to wherever they had to drive to. Now, it, it was a good meeting. And I think between uh, you and your mate, we... It was a good perspective. I certainly enjoyed that day. All right, good. That's nice to hear. And boy, we're still going through this feedback. We better better move this along, huh? Yes. Uh, I don't and just we we care. Thank you for enlightening, Sean. We can hear your frustration. Thank you for keeping on pushing and hope and pray those of us listening would get behind you. Regards, Maureen. Thank you, Maureen. I yeah. I for one am enjoying myself, honestly. 
I I don't let this get me down too much. It is what it is. And uh, not complain till I die. I have to say it's been funny, um, Maureen, to to listen to uh, and read some of Jaspreet's feedback. Uh, there's a big billboard in, um, in Auckland with yours truly and Jaspreet on it, and it's, it's huge. And we had a wag ring us today and uh, over the weekend, sorry, and he said, um, is that Times Square? <laughs> <laughs> Simmons Street, Auckland, 8 by 25 metres. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I am so happy. I live out in the sticks where I do, Dawn. I am not cut for this level of public scrutiny. <laughs> and uh, But yeah, certainly going to enjoy this fight. It keeps keeps me going. And uh, I don't see John, I don't see Dawn playing off anytime soon, do I, Dawn? Who knows? Who knows? Um, <laughs> I, my energy levels are okay at the moment, but I do flag <laughs> occasionally. But interestingly, um, there's a one here on fluoridation. And yeah, regardless of your your pros and or your for or against it um, argument, I'll say this: I was the only child in this my family that had fluoride tablets when I was a kid, mm. and I had the worst teeth of my family. Like I had so much amalgam in my mouth by the time I was ten or twelve. So perhaps I'm not the good ad for um, people that want to fluoridate water. People don't want to fluoridate. Water. I know, I know they don't. I know <laughs> they don't. But. Um, but, I, uh, but the so authorities this, do. The authorities so this do. This email is from Julie. Uh, Don and Jaspreet, have you talked about fluoride in the water? How will it affect when our councils do this next year? I believe other hosts have spoken about it, Julie. And I note that uh, recently the Wangarai District Council has defied the government and halted the $5 million fluoridation mandate. And this the mandate has come from the Director General of Health in July 22 that required 14 councils, including Whangarei, to add water to drinking, add fluoride to drinking water under the Health Regulation Amendment Act. And the cost of fluoridation for the council is estimated at 4.6 million for 60,000 people and cost another $100,000 to run. This is mass medication as far as I am concerned. And uh, good on this council, actually, for standing up. Two of the councillors have asked for a community referendum, and the council's pause may affect its ability to meet the government deadlines. And you know, there's there's quite some, uh, quite a lot of risks hanging here because if they are non-compliant, they face fines of up to two hundred thousand dollars and a daily penalty for te- of ten thousand dollars for continued non-compliance. So the council mm. is uh, risking a lot. Yeah, it was, and I just remembered, uh, Jasper, it was Paul Brennan interviewing a guy called Roy Chomteloo. Uh, he's living in Arrowtown, questioning the Arrowtown push to have fluoridation. Uh, so maybe if you look back on the replays, you'll get some information from that. Yeah. It was about a month ago. Yeah. Andrew Watts has sent us a link. Thank you, Andrew, because we were looking for another speaker from uh, South Africa talking about what's happening to white farmers over there. And he sent us a link and I will look into this. Thank you so much. And we'll see if we can get another speaker specifically from the farming community in South Africa. And there's one last, this is from Honey, is the name given. And uh, he says all corporations are pretty much run by WEF as well as, you know, the government farmers and whatever else, all the rules that we are. Look, we've spoken, uh, Honey, 
we've spoken today about you know going through this feedback and how many times have you mentioned the word united nation directives or you know international world health organization directives or the un migration compact it it, it is pretty obvious yet isn't it stunning don how as a run up to these elections not one not one politician has acknowledged where they get their orders from i think you were being um kind earlier on you talked about the un being an ngo um, I think it's a bit bigger than just a non-government organization. It's uh, it's not an NGO in my mind, but um, I, I'm not sure whether you said that tongue-in-cheek. Uh, another bit of feedback here from Susan Peach talks about the interview with Ian McIntosh. Now, she wanted his slides. I'm not sure whether um, we've posted them or not in, on our website, but Ian has done a 12-minute video clip that we're trying to get up for him on, on the RCR sort of network somewhere. Now, if we can't, we'll... We'll say sorry to Ian now, but uh, we're trying our best to get it up. It's about, um, yeah, he does a 12-minute um Yeah, we, we'll, have it. we'll mm. have it up by the next show, definitely. Yeah. We'll have a link for you where it's been uploaded. Yeah. Just uh, uh, for now, we will just have to ask for a bit more time to get that up. Mm. Uh, God, so I was just reading Honey's uh, feedback. This is not about the money. It's about living. Call this crazy. Call this far-fetched, but it's going to take all the people to shut this down ASAP. Let us not make money because if it is, the decisions already been taken by the elites. Read the documents. Iron Mountain, the blueprint for tyranny. NASA, the future is now. And forest fires, a military weapon, 1970. And reach out to me if you want me to forward these documents to you. I will reach out. I have an email address for Honey here. And uh, thank you so much for your email. Now, Another thing that caught my attention this week was uh, seeing the face of uh, Chris Hipkins on Women's Weekly. Yeah, that's hardly blatant electioneering at the last minute, is it? <laughs> but we have a bloke on Women's Weekly who could not uh, define what a woman was done. That the contradiction's not lost on me. No, no. And that's quite a contrast to... This uh, soundbite I'm going to play now from, this is Rishi Sonak, the British PM, who somehow seems to have, uh, pardon my French, found his balls. Here goes. Change this country, and that means life means life. Now, that shouldn't be a controversial position. The vast majority of hardworking people agree with it. And it also shouldn't be controversial for parents to know what their children are being taught in school about relationships. Patients should know when hospitals are talking about men or women. And we shouldn't get bullied. And we shouldn't get bullied into believing that people can be any sex they want to be. They can't. A man is a man and a woman is a woman. That's just common sense. Perhaps uh, Labour could take a pointer from if they want a few more votes. Who knows, Don? Yeah, well, that was at a, exactly that was at a conference called Long Term Decisions for a Brighter Future. I would have thought that short term decisions could have been um, one that could have been taken for the brighter future. <laughs> but gee, amazing to have the Prime Minister of the UK um, uh, talk like that. That was outstanding. He was outstanding in his field, yeah, as they say. But we 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 haven't got people in New Zealand that can say it that clearly. 
and it's hardly a controversial statement it is hardly a controversial statement if someone can't say this much well they deserve all that they are getting and more and i think on that note we should take a short break and don and i will be back in a moment but before we go here is the same artist we played i think last week blind joe but this is with another gem of his called the whole truth and you know you might guess what's coming here but enjoy if you're born with a penis you're a boy and if you can have a baby you're a girl and if you don't like this song cuz you think what i'm saying's wrong you're the dumbest human being in the world cross no lines or make nobody tense but it seems to me that these days we've all lost our common sense well if this song offends you friend it's time to dry your tears and face the facts that we've all known for at least a thousand years yeah, if you're born with a penis you're a boy and if you can have a baby you're a girl and if you don't like this song cuz you think what i'm singing's wrong They care about us, but that's a pack of lies. You can watch them while they're talking and you'll see it in their eyes. But if you completely trust them and you think our freedom's free, well I hate to say it, buddy, but you're just as blind as me. And if you're born with a penis, you're a boy. And if you can have a baby, you're a girl. And if you don't like this song cuz you think what I'm saying's wrong, Want an easier way to listen to RCR? Well, you can now download the brand new Reality Check Radio app, both on iOS and Android. We've completed our beta testing, and the app is now live. You can visit the app stores direct, or find out all you need to know at www.realitycheck.radio/app. That's at realitycheck.radio/app. Our test bunnies have been hard at play to ensure you have access to everything. From listening to our live broadcast, downloading some of our incredible interviews, and checking out the latest blogs, all from the very same app. 
So get listening and download the RCR app now. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Greenwash, Jaspreet and Don. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Our number is 2057. If you want to send us a text or email us at inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. Now, just yeah. looking through some of the papers and the greenwashing headlines over the last week, Don, um, let's begin from uh, domestic ones, the rural, the dairy news. There's a small red flashing blurb in the on the main page that says, just don't forget the science. Well, I wish that was true. <laughs> Isn't that a, um, a major uh, turn up for the books? I mean, we seem to have forgotten the science all the way through the last um, few years. There's been one narrative that's okay, and anyone that challenges it is not okay. So, you know, science is obviously complete in the eyes of some of our farming leaders and some of the agencies they work with, but we know it isn't, and we're going to have to keep the foot on their throat. Absolutely. And you, you just have to see, Don, where the money is going, all these announcements of these alliances and other things. But uh, the second page that goes on to say, it says that strong co-op vital, if it wasn't for Fontera, we would be getting paid for our milk just a little bit about the cost of production. No more, says Greg Gent. Now, I wonder how true is that? Tatua has uh, delivered for last year just shy of $13 per kg milk solid for its farmers. That's much, nearly 50% more than Fontera did last year, $8 something. I'm a bit vague on the exact numbers, but uh, there are other co-ops delivering and delivering yeah. much better. Yeah, and I think there's only been one year that I re can recall that Tartua may have um, a payout that was similar in, font in size to Fonterra. So Tartua has always been the, um, the top tier. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure... Yeah, I assume they're into different type of value-added products. I'm not entirely sure. But, um, yeah, that's – I imagine they run a lean machine as well. And, you know, I have to say an observation from uh, a person that's not a Fonterra shareholder is that they ain't lean and mean anymore. And you, you guys that are shareholders are paying for that. Yep, completely. And so, you will not pay for the diversity-based appointed – uh, counselor yeah. Yeah. who will have to identify as a non-European, non-Pakeha, non-Kiwi, because that's what they're saying, different nationality, different ethnicity. All of that doesn't just pay for itself. Um, this... may, maybe they can get a uh, transvestite from outer Mongolia. That would perhaps fit the bill, would it? There's an idea. There's an best idea. Man, best man, woman, or whosoever for the job. I thought that's that's what Fonterra's entire role was. Mm -hmm. There's also this from uh, Axe MP, Mark Cameron. Ag minister doesn't understand farmers. Yeah, he just understands the dictates from the United Nations. <laughs> yeah, and sadly, um, there's no potential Ag minister if after next weekend maybe um, understanding that either. They all are hiding behind. You must jump all these hurdles. Uh, and, of course, all the marketing people in the in the big co-ops and big processing companies are saying we must jump all these hurdles or else we'll have trade barriers. Mm. Well, I still say to you, and I'm repeating this time and time again, New Zealand already has, uh, New Zealand producers already have the highest status, the gold standard of um, trading um, 
uh, commodities, and that is subsidy free. We don't ask the state to pay their taxes to subsidies or subsidizing farmers. That surely should be um, a fantastic gold standard that we should have the rest of the world aspire to. Then we can actually start talking about what other things, if they're going to be trade barriers, then there could be some legitimacy around them. But at the moment, anyone that threatens trade barriers because we're not meeting our climate credentials um, is speaking with forked tongue. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Damien O'Connor, he completely understands what Agnes Calibata, the UN food envoy, has to say. The ex-Rwandan ag minister appointed as a puppet head to the United Nations uh, food envoy role, who destroyed her own country's ag sector and is now dictates what the rest of the world should do. The hypocrisy would be breathtaking if it wasn't this ridiculous. And none of our ministers, none of them leading up to the elections have said a word about this. Or even the fact that we have, you know, ex-reserve bank governors, our uh, own sainted Ashley Bloomfield and others speaking at this UN conferences. Let's let's just pretend none of that happens. We are really good at that. Ostriches, heads in the sand. But I enjoyed this article, Substack article by... Uh, RCR, uh, another RCR host, Peter Williams, who's written this while he is in Spain. And he's written the fact that Simon Wilson, the NZ Herald uh, art writer, who also covers climate change, amongst other things, that New Zealand farmers should vote green. Vote green. The Greens want to bring methane emissions into the ETS from next year, start charging farmers for their ag emissions. And uh, even with the decreased demand from China, writes Peter Williams, most dairy farmers will struggle to break even. The Fonterra price being offered is $6.75 $6 per kg milk solids. And the NZ Herald says farmers should vote green, income or taxation, because that's the only way New Zealand, especially dairy, will be able to crack it in the world markets. Isn't it amazing that nobody not even those supposedly standing up for uh, rural New Zealand say anything. The Fonterra CEO, Miles Harrell, is quoted by Simon Wilson in the Herald saying that it's not it's not good enough that we have a carbon footprint, only a third of the global average. We must <laughs> do better. Comply till you die. Yeah, it's and, like uh... they they uh, you know the simile he draws here is is interesting. Peter Williams says it's like saying after the All Blacks have won a Rugby World Cup final that we could have played better. Mm. Yeah, Peter writes really well. And of course, um, Simon Wilson, uh, I think he shows his bright red colours quite well. Uh, the guy's um, been a septic piece of work. I've watched or heard of him on recent uh, political debates. As I say, I don't really watch those political debates anymore, but he's been a commentator on them, I gather. Yeah, the guy's just got an attitude uh, about putting farmers down all the time. Um, so what's his agenda? No, no, we're not allowed to talk about that because we're going to have free speech rules that will take people like you and me out. Um, yeah, look, I, Mr. Wilson and others, I mean, he even talks about Rod Carr um, from the Climate Change Commission saying if we do not figure out how to make milk and meat protein with low emissions, the countries that can afford to buy elsewhere will do so. Well, we've just told people that we're a third the global average. Um, not good so, enough, Don. Sorry, no. not good enough. You've got to do better. And, of course, if they would just listen to 
proper physicists, you know, the, the eminent science that's required to uh, to assess the uh, warming effect of, of emissions, they would know that methane and nitrous oxide can have close to zero effect, regardless of the source on climate. Zero effect. But we've got people with their snouts in the trough just milking it until we finally make them go home, <laughs> milking it till the cows come home, so to speak. <laughs> you couldn't avoid that part, could you? But, mm. you know, there's there's more more to that than this. Mm. There's more, more greenwash headlines this week. The I'll begin from this one. The invisible killer in New Zealand. Oh. What do you think it could be done? Oh, ooh, gee, obesity? No, that's not invisible, is it? Um, what else? Air pollution. Uh, Air pollution in New Zealand. In New Zealand. Yep. We get the roaring 40s coming through and uh, we blow everything away. Surely. Newsroom says that at this point, and this is an article over this weekend, it says that one in 10 Kiwis is being killed by air pollution. Of course, uh, you can guess the writer is Mark Daldar, who covers sustainable futures. So, did you know that 3,300 New Zealanders die every year due to prematurely due to air pollution? No. Um, if we moved on, he says, then we moved on as if we hadn't unmasked one of the country's greatest mass killers for more than a year. MSM Newsroom has been digging deep into the story and, you know, figuring out more about air quality and how we are all, I don't know, going to just choke to death. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I've, I've got the remedy. I've got the remedy. Um, it's get Michael Baker and Susie Wiles and get some flash new mask and we'll just mask everybody up and then we won't have to worry about the um, the particulate matter in the atmosphere. <laughs> you know, it'll just be taken out. I mean, I, I look, I, I understand what these guys are saying. I'm being facetious. Um, and even, even in Invercargill uh, in midwinter days, we have an inversion layer on the coldest days and you don't – that's why coal fires have sort of been terminated in this region where the PM, uh, is it PM10 levels have, um, were, 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 there were several times during winter where they were exceeded. Well, when I was a kid, Invercargill pretty much had all coal fires. Mm. So there was a lot. I love the smell of burning coal in, a, in an urban environment, to be honest. It's a very interesting smell, but mm. it's a bit like the old coal trains. I love that smell too. Anyway, we don't have that anymore, and there's a good reason because of those particulate matters uh, that were in the atmosphere. But, you know, still 3,300. Oh, you, you've, got, you've got to listen to this. And I'm, I'm going to quote verbatim from this one. Air pollution is a murder mystery in reverse, says Mark Dalder. We know who the killer is, even if we can't see him. The victims, however, are faceless. It's a public health crisis. Another one taking even more lives than COVID-19 in the past year, mounting a toll 10 times greater than the number of people who die on our roads annually. It's harder to write about an invisible killer, he says. And even though we know what's responsible, there's no murder weapon at the scene. And then he goes on to say what happens, what's what's going on. It is exhaust from internal combustion <laughs> engines, specifically diesel, he says. He, when he goes back in history to say the five-day great smog of London killed 12,000 people in 1952. Then he talks about Australian bushfires that were felt, the effect of which were felt in New Zealand 
Then he quotes the World Health Organization. What business do they have here? But, you know, I can't help but interpaper my talk about this because the UN is omnipresent. Even if people refuse to see it, the UN is omnipresent in New Zealand. And it is saying that the World Health Organization says chronic exposure to smoke can lead to loss of quality of life, increased morbidity, restricted activity days, kiddies as asthma, and so on. It's And then, just like you spoke about wood fires, the other thing he says is wood fires. Wood fires are the ones that are, again, that need to be done away with. And cars, electrification, just the whole article. It's, it's amazing how they can find thousands of words for this nonsense. Oh, people often talk about um, yeah, people being in the pay of big oil. Um, perhaps these guys are in the pay of big electricity. I don't know. There's, there's yeah, an just, idea. There's an idea. Yeah, maybe that's the case. It's oh. it's it's the merchants of doom. I mean, it it is right that we want our air to be as clean as possible, uh, but we realise that we are an economy that's um, um, more urbanised now than than rural, and but we're actually very small in the scheme of things, and we're an island nation that does have pretty good airflow. So, you know. The constant knocking of the internal combustion engine, or in this case as well, wood fires, after we've just banned coal fires, so let's ban wood fires now. Um, I know we've got low emissions wood fires, but that won't be good enough either. And let's have heat pumps. Let's put ourselves into a single source of energy. A single source of energy. Let's just have electricity. Let's make ourselves really vulnerable. Hunger Games. Let's just do this. And he goes on to say, he says, getting people out of cars and electrifying the vehicles that remain, that remain, won't only slash greenhouse emissions, it could also prolong the life of 2,200 people each year and avert, guess how much is he saying this costs, social costs of this? Oh, it'll be billions. Yeah, $10.5 billion. Home heating oh. is tougher. Wood burners are seen as a low carbon alternative to gas heating, but even, you know, we need to know when we can get wood burners that will release no harmful emissions. And he goes on and on and on. Well, the evolution of things will make sure that things have less emissions over time. Look, I'm confident of that sort of thing. But in the end, this the author of this almost is saying we don't want cars on the road, so we don't have to fix the potholes. Uh, mm -hmm. We don't have to invest in roads. We don't have to. I mean, these people that don't like what we've got, and we've earned our keep uh, over the years to, to, or earned our right to have them. Now we want to diminish them. Um, yeah, I just, I don't know what makes these people tick, but call me old fashioned. Neither do I. Neither <laughs> do I. Another uh, thing going on the same vein about, you know, the climate and all of this is this article from the BMJ, the British Medical Journal, which at one time, when my kids were younger and I remember doing some research here, I used to actually hold in some sort of esteem down. But uh, times have changed. I've become a bit wiser as I've grown older. But here is this article. On the, uh, this was released just last week on the 5th of, uh, 3rd of October, 5th of October. And it's an opinion piece in the British Medical Journal titled, To Tackle the Climate Crisis, We Need to Transform Systems According to according to ancestral or ancestral original instructions 
And this article, I should preempt you by telling you who this is. It is written by Rice Jones, a public health physician and associate professor in Maori Health in in University of Auckland. <laughs> he is a passionate advocate for health equity, indigenous rights, and climate justice. Rise were the founding co-convener co of Oratau, the New Zealand Climate and Health Council. So we have a Climate and Health Council. Do you see how these narratives are all coming together? So Climate and Health Council. Mm -hmm. We also, incidentally, have a public uh, center for uh, communications, of um, for medical communications. I think it's PMCC. And yeah. all of those have also been released. So in any case, I went through this uh, opinion piece of the British Medical Journal by Dr. Rice Jones, and he's talking about how do we sort out the climate crisis. It's a given we have a climate crisis. Ours is not to reason why. He says we need to take history in order. And uh, there he goes. Floods and storms hit Te Ika Amoai, uh, Maui, the North Island, leading to the loss of life and major social, economic, and environmental upheaval. These extreme weather events have triggered a public health crisis with seriously, with serious and profoundly inequitable, there's that word, equity, inequitable effects while also serving as a warning of worse to come. He, he didn't and use the, the term atmospheric river, did he? Which is, a, which is a bit of a plus because he could have used that and he could have made it all more catastrophic than it already has been, hammed it up. Um, so Reese is his name, Reese Jones. He went on to say, and this this really gets me. <laughs> uh, you know, Aotearoa, and yeah, that still winds me up too. Susceptibility to climate-related events is increased by changes in land use and patterns and of development that have occurred since European settlement. Set, and this is the real killer blow for me. Settler colonialism, with its underpinning assumptions of superiority and resulting imposition of social, cultural, political, and economic systems has transformed environments in ways that exacerbate the impacts of floods and storms. You and your ilk, Don. Oh, guilty. Guilty. Totally guilty. You shall pay. You shall pay. And Just you pay. shall be decarbonized. Settler yep. colonialism, so that's, that's responsible for the climate crisis. Another example of this can be seen, says uh, the good professor, at the intersection of market-driven livestock farming and exotic plantation land use with severe weather events on the east coast of the Ika'amaui. All right. And logging native forests, draining wetlands, clearing land for pastoral agriculture have led to soil erosion, soil loss, and so on. And it's not surprising that climate change has been realized recognized as the greatest threat to global health in the 21st century, hasn't Jacinda, you know, reiterated so many times. We've had Nanaya go to the United Nations General Assembly 78th uh, convention in September and talk about the fact for Asia, for the Pacific Islands, it is the existential threat. He says, as health professionals, we are taught that the first step in diagnosing and managing problems is to take a history. So for the climate, so the climate is now coming under the medical profession. This is the first thing I get from this. Climate is no longer physics or chemistry or, you know, the atmospheric sciences or all of that, or possibly the intersection of all of this. Climate is now medicine, and medicine is climate. 
and they are attributing everything from cardiac issues to whatnot to the climate crisis. He says, when we look back and see this extractive worldview and way of being in the world is a feature of colonialism. And the ecocide that we face, you know, that now govern our world are not inevitable or human nature, but the result of a series of decisions that have their origins and reverberations in colonization. Reverberations in colonization. Yeah, it's it's incredibly bitter, this whole um this whole article. Uh, I dare say I've written bitter um opinion editorials before as well, but you know, it, it it's so divisive. There's nothing in here. He's he's a he's been trained in um, colonialist universities, no doubt, um, and he's now basically wanting to be a renegade and a and a person who doesn't like what he's got around him. I mean, can we start from today and say, look, we've got a lot of good stuff happening in this world, a lot of bad stuff. Let's make sure we just have um, the right stuff. Um, ahead of us we don't have to have this divisive it's purposefully divisive i mean i i've been watching the slow growth of the division in this country and the political forces that allow it to continue um haven't said we're not going to endorse this stuff we're not going to have the gravy train that uh some of the maori elites are, are hot to get into um no, i i will i will disagree with you there don't it's it's not just uh, you know Maori elites or anyone. There's it's everyone there. The gravy train has oh. been is. I don't think nepotism has, uh, you know, is bound by race. Everyone has had a piece of the pie. I see people of Indian origin, different oh, migrants, yes. migrants put into certain positions, where suddenly if you say something to them, they are racist. I see institutions like you know Akina, and uh, the Aotearoa Circle the Center for Sustainable Finance New Zealand. I see the movers and shakers, and there's definitely money following this. There is, you know, we've, I'm going to play in a, a little clip soon. And this is, was by the ex-director of Akina, which is, I don't know how many people are familiar with this name. Did you, were you aware of this for, uh, a, for uh, a while, uh, the Akina uh, Foundation? Well, I've only since you and I've been doing this program have have heard of Akina, and of course we earlier on talked about carbon um, forestry, and we came across companies called Ecos and others, and Akina's name was mentioned. But no, Jasper, you're teaching me every day, and it it's boring stuff, isn't it, Don? It is. It's boring. It is drab, and you know, it it would be boring if it if it was not so damning annoying when you realize how expensive this stuff is to every new zealander these people are feeding themselves at you know they're, they're feeding themselves at their own at the trough that's costing you and i a lot of money and uh yeah they, they talk about impact investing and the like well yeah and you, you take that right through uh to the links with agri uh, uh agri zero is it is it agri zero yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so it's just Akina it's just foundation, massive. If you if you ever look at it, listeners, and it is A-K-I-N-A dot O-R-G dot N-Z. So it's been around since 2008. At that time, the Todd and the Tyndall Foundations, they had a different name for it. It was called the Hikurangi Foundation to support climate action at the grassroots level. 
over time, this morphed into, they say they moved into social enterprise. I say they moved into social engineering. Mm -hmm. And their vehicle was finance, financial investments. In 2014, at that time, it was a national government. They announced funding to expand this, uh, the Akina's incubation and development services for high potential social enterprises. And I remember at the time hearing a whole lot, suddenly, you know, there was packaging, there was sustainability, there were brands that are now recognized. And I see a trail of, be it uh, stuff like the Chia Sisters and others, uh, all of these coming through. And suddenly there was a lot of hype. So Akina has been working there for a while. In 2018, Akina became a strategic partner with the government, labor at this point. So it doesn't really matter who's at the helm of affairs to begin a three-year program to develop what they said to be New Zealand's social enterprise sector. They called it the Impact Initiative. And uh, so the government partnered with this NGO. And Akina continues till today. It is a, They say the word Akina is a Maori word that means to challenge, encourage, or urge on upwards. So if you are into... SDGs or I mean I wish because I am for climate action I am for taking care of the environment but I am not for legislated privilege I am not for virtue signaling and I'm not developing or you know fattening your own wallet at the expense of the taxpayer and that's what Akina does it says it does impact strategy social procurement impact investment and looking at how social enterprises review their business and impact models. All of this is literally what we speak about, the ESG, mm. the environmental, social and governance factors, looking beyond your balance sheets, looking beyond your bottom lines, which is also incidentally what e, your SDG is, the Sustainable Development Goals, again, pushing you for all of the social engineering initiatives which is also what DEI is, the diversity, equity, inclusion. So for me, DEI, SDG, ESG, there is nothing, not a lot to choose between them. A lot to choose. And of course, all this links um, into, as you say, the SDGs. But you remember when uh, former Prime Minister Ardern got to the podium in 2020, she talked about the just transition. Um, and this is all part of the just transition. I I had it come at me when I was a director uh, in an electricity company. The just transition. Um, it's all. Yeah, it's a it's a word that's used worldwide, and there are circles that you're talking about the United Nations circles, and they've linked in all this. And you'll see, um, aside from Akina, uh, the impact investment um, network ATRO involves even the Southland Community Trust. I mean, it's it's all pervasive. It gets everybody. It does. It does. And I'm looking at a blog post from uh, then Akina's uh, director of Akina Invest, Jackson Rowland. It's on their website stating 13 July 2022. It shows Jackson. Behind him is uh, the World Economic Forum, the Blue Screen Annual Meeting 2022. And he says, at its core, he says, actually, in this May, I went over to Davos to attend the World Economic Forum meeting, where met with world leaders, workshopped sustainable financial initiatives, so pushing the United Nations agendas through finance. So if you have 
banks coming up with fish hooks, suddenly not being able to renew your mortgage, suddenly not being able to get a mortgage for a rural, say a lifestyle block, but you can get it for a chicken coop apartment block. Well, that's that's your sustainable finance in action. And so this is Jackson reflecting in this blog post about what he did. He says, I worked through, I've, you know, I got insights into research and reports such as the Global Risk Report. I networked with communities like the Young Global Leaders and the Global Shapers community, for which I've been a member for a number of years. And there were 2,000 people at the meeting, 50 heads of state, 125 Global Shapers and Young Global Leaders. 200 NGOs, 300 government reps, 400 media representatives, and 1,250 private sector bodies. And they do nothing. We have, you know. Oh, oh, they were all there at their own cost, cost no one anything, you know, apart from their their own savings. They pay their own way, didn't they? I'm sure they do, Tom. (laughs) The World Economic Forum sponsors them. Yeah. And, And there are free lunches in this world, and I was born yesterday. Yeah. Yeah, but it's... but Jackson has gone places, Jackson Rowland. And I am now going to try and play a clip of his when he's talking with a lady from the Sustainable Finance, Center for Sustainable Finance, also called Toitu Tahua. And I'm absolutely ma- massacring, you know, Tira Maori. And I have no problem with that. These, but these are two separate languages. As my teachers in India would say, don't, you know, use English. Don't destroy two perfectly good languages. Let's use them in their relevant context. But here he is. And so he's left Akina now. And he'll tell you where he is now and what he does. Have a listen. Well, uh, thank you very much for having me. Call uh, Jackson Tokawinga, or my name is Jackson. Uh, I have for the past six odd years been working at Arkena in New Zealand, leading our impact investment work, where we've been trying to build the impact investment ecosystem in New Zealand. Uh, But I'm actually now based over in New York on a program with the Obama Foundation to learn a whole lot more around the sustainable finance ecosystem before hopefully bringing those ideas back to New Zealand and continuing to build the space over there. We do hope you'll come back. <laughs> um, great. And so I invited you to, I invited you here so I can ask you a bit about um, what your view on the state of progress is towards one of the recommendations in the Sustainable Finance Forum Roadmap, which is remove barriers to purpose-led businesses and investment models, or what most people call impact investing. So I'd love you to share what, in your view, that is. What is, you know, purpose-led investment models or impact investing? Yeah, sure. Uh, I like to keep these things as simple as possible, and I I think that helps to build this ecosystem. And so fundamentally, for me, it is just as it says on the tin, you know, a purpose-led organisation, so it exists for something more than just making profit, uh, but is also looking for investment and has that business model around it. So that's where the investment piece comes in. So it's operating in a financially profitable way and seeking investment that is looking to maximise that impact and the social or environmental things they create, as well as enable the financial and profitable returns that the business can also create. Awesome. Yeah, I think that summarises it pretty well. Um, and then your, yeah, your view on what progress to date has been. So given the roadmap was released a couple of years ago now, you know, what can you reflect on as progress in the New Zealand context and potentially your view on what the challenges have been to enabling um, this to this roadmap to rec- recommendation to be realised? 
Yeah, sure. Well, I think it's really exciting and important in New Zealand that we've seen some significant things at a very high level come out, such as legal opinions to reinforce that directors can and should uh, consider broader implications for the environment and things like that within their decision making. There's also, you know, uh, bills within government at the moment around increasing explicitly, making sure that directors should consider again climate and things within their decisions. So at that kind of high level, there's been some important statements to say, yep, this stuff is legitimate. Businesses should be thinking about broader outcomes. This is important. But what we're not seeing yet in New Zealand and kind of the challenges here is getting that to flow through to the organisations on the ground of all shapes and sizes, whether that's small organisations or, or the larger listed organisations. Uh, and I think part of the, the challenge that underlies all of this is this idea of kind of legitimacy. So in New Zealand, the, the, we're really familiar with businesses as a concept and we're really familiar with charities as a concept. What we're talking about here with this purpose-led thing, it kind of sits in the middle. And anything that doesn't fall in either of those boxes creates confusion for stakeholders. And with confusion, we then think risk. And so that risk is fundamentally a reason why a number of people are not giving the support to these purpose-led organisations that they necessarily should. So this was Jackson Rowland speaking to the Center of uh, Sustainable Finance from the Obama Foundation, where he's currently uh, in the class of 22-23. I don't, uh, I think he's probably passed out now because this video is uh, a few months old. And the Obama Foundation says our mission is to help people turn hope into action and to connect them to their worlds. We are creating value-based change makers around the world. And the programs they have are Obama Youth Corps, Future Leader Series, and they are spread across the world. You know, they have special programs for Asia, Africa, Asia Pacific, Europe, and of course for US. And they are literally pushing the United Nations SDGs, the World Economic Forum agendas, all these NGOs who are unelected, unaccountable, and frankly, undesirable. But here we are, and we have these, and I have no doubt that Jackson is a very earnest, well-meaning young person. But do they see what they are doing? What what do they mean by, you know, impact investing and purpose-led organizations? I thought if I begin a business, my husband and I run a business, the purpose of that is to provide us a good life, provide us a livelihood, and uh, take care of the farm where we work and leave it in a better condition that we found it. I thought that is purpose enough, Tom. Uh, and plus you want to make a profit um, mm. and pay some taxes and uh, you perhaps don't want to pay taxes, but that's what we do. But the thing, he 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 did seem an earnest young man, mm. uh, but but on the other side of it, he killed it all for me when he talked about stakeholders. Um, I'm sorry, you run companies for shareholders. Uh, shareholders should take notice of uh, things that, don't make them um, better off. So mm -hmm. if you like to be uh, a poor steward of your assets and, um, for instance, something climatic happens, then um, you take the rap. I just yeah. don't get why uh, he wants to link in stakeholders. I am not a stakeholder in someone that owns, with someone that owns a coastal property, for instance. Yeah, but he's, he's echoing yeah. Klaus Schwab's words, stakeholder yes. capitalism yes, has been the absolutely. model. Absolutely. And so, yeah, just going back, I think you told me that the Obama Foundation uh, 
found or wanted to find 500 young New Zealanders to to um, educate, and but then they lifted that quota to 1,500. Is that right? Uh, they, when Obama came in 2018 to New Zealand, they were talking about, he, he, he said, and again, look at the divide and rule. He said he's speaking to 20 Vahine Maori. That's those are the words that he were used, and the, the article came. Uh, Maori Vahini leaders impress Obama, Barack Obama, and uh, he had it says he shared an intimate brunch with twenty Maori women, where he told them that the work Maori are doing is a model that you know he is uh, using in the in the U.S. And they were talking about PhDs and how many more Maori PhDs that they would like doctoral students, postdoctoral students, and all of that. And that is what gets me, you know, hmm. just buzzing but about what it's how is their business and then what will these doctoral studies be in? So it's it was not like he'd be sponsoring them or something, but that's what they were talking about. And it surprises me that you have ethnicity specific doctoral targets, doctoral student targets and others. Well, encouraged by a uh, person as um, well known as Barack Obama. I mean, he's what what right has he got to be telling us um, what target we should have? Um, anyway, and everyone so, thought he was John Key's golfing buddy, but no, they are buddies of everyone. The NGOs doesn't ha- matter who it is. So, so going back to Jackson's output, you know, there he seemed to be thinking that he was talking about something unique in a business sense, mm-hmm. but I never got out of it that wasn't anything that wasn't just business as usual, um, except for uh, perhaps where they want to involve the non-investor, the, the sort of the person on the fringes that has an influence. So the lady was questioning him. She was she was asking him, how far do you think the sustainable roadmap, you know, two years mm-hmm. from that, what do you look, uh, what do you see? And uh, listeners, if uh, you want to check this out, please go to sustainablefinance.nz. Or if you've you know lost the thread of conversation somewhere, give us a text at 2057 or inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. So sustainablefinance.nz is the website that released, you know, that is speaking about the roadmap to 2030. Think of agenda 2030, do, you know, same dates, anything, ring, put, put together the threads. But out there, they are speaking about the priorities that they have for the 2030 low-carbon transitioning New Zealand economy. And then what I really enjoy is under resources, they have sectoral guidance about who to finance, how to finance, and then they have New Zealand sustainable finance examples. And they talk about the Auckland Council Euro 500 million green bond they talk about Craigmore Sustainables, funded by ASB. It is one of the largest diversified companies, and Aotearoa has got 78 million as an innovative, sustainability-focused deal, and to be for to help it to be a leader in land-based reduction of greenhouse gases. There is Genesis. There is healthy home loan packages. There is Maori business. They are talking about. Mostly all of these, these are from different banks or some in a couple of places, second tier lenders, but they're talking about the banks have set sustainable funding targets for different years, which includes green, social and sustainability linked lending across the rural, property, corporate, business and Maori economies. 
silver ferns, sustainability link loans, spark, and all of this. And this is pretty much you will only get funded if you meet the roadmap to 2030, uh, you know, the sustainable finance roadmap to 2030, which in turn pushes you towards the roadmap to the United Nations Agenda 2030. This is in the private sector. And if you look at your local government sector, we have the LGFA, the Local Government Funding Agency, lgfa.co.nz. For uh, It's been, I think, at least a good two years since I've been talking about it. Under their sustainability criteria, they have the sustainability lending where they have the same categories, green, social, and sustainability-based loans to assist councils and council-controlled organizations to finance projects that promote environmental and social well-being. But what I like about them is that uh, they have made it really clear that <laughs> they say that we believe that it's our role to help push the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And they have their climate action loans, their criteria very closely linked to the UN goals. And they make no bones about the fact that the United Nations SDGs, local government has a role in doing that. It says mm. on their website, bold as brass, as a part of our commitment to sustainability, LGFA will seek to finance or refinance via councils, projects, and assets that deliver positive environmental and social outcomes contributing to meeting the United Nations SDGs comprising of 17 goals and 169 targets. There you have it, in black and white. That's what a local government funding agency works for, works mm -hmm. towards. But isn't it interesting, the other night at that meeting at a Tower, we had a councillor. And I'm told that he, um, when I started mentioning United Nations uh, and WEF and the like, uh, that's where he, he zoned out. So, uh, yeah, pretty disappointing, isn't it? There's not many people like uh, like hearing this stuff, but we've got to keep it in front of them. And you've just done a massive amount of research, Jaspreet. Uh, listeners, Jaspreet has multiple screens in front of her when she's speaking to me and I can't keep up. <laughs> um, so that's probably pretty obvious. But uh, I'm aware of her um, intensity on this stuff and I can't fault it. It's everywhere. And these people are milking um, the opportunity afforded to them by the current and former administration um, beyond belief. This stuff is on steroids. It's costing you and me as taxpayers dearly. And um, they're trying to influence the way we live and work. And it's just got to stop. Yeah, they have absolutely, as you know, Arden often said, we don't have a social mandate to do this or anything. They have no mandate. They have none whatsoever. Not that it's stopping them in any case, but nobody asked. Nobody. Well, I mean, that's a week left for elections, Don. Not, yeah. Nothing in the campaign about all of this. Nothing. And, and uh, you know, part of that uh, talk is around the language used. And as you and I know, there are certain words, and we won't go through them, but there's there's a lexicon of words that these people use to seduce people to believe that they're all, uh, it's all, it's all, it's all going to be nice if you come to our dark side. Mm, mm. Mm. I mean, you know, organizations like Silver Ferns and Beef and Lamb and Fonterra and Sinlay and yeah. everyone, 
they have all signed up to the uh, to these roadmaps if so I, I go to the agri adaptation roadmap that the outroa circle dot nz shows they have exactly laid out these unelected people nosy parkers interfering in our lives they have told us what or how they expect the agricultural sector to adapt do when dairy nz or anyone else when they have their field days do they tell us where the blueprint of all of this is coming from and yet they are all signed up to this no they don't and uh but i know how it will happen uh they'll get uh, a marketing manager come to a board meeting mm. and he will say he will spin the story that these are all must-dos or else you will not get X, Y, Z on your bottom line. Um, there will never be a really good test of uh, of the value add, but that will be sold under that premise of a threat rather than a reality. And uh, I've, yeah, it's just how it works. Uh, so directors, um, time to stand up and say, we need a whole lot more information. We want to know the background. We want to know the profit, you know, the profit and loss on this stuff. And uh, or loss on the stuff and before we tick the box and now let me uh, let me list out just just to be really really boring now let me list out the <laughs> number of companies that have been that have been listed as the in the leadership group that have produced this agricultural sector adaptation report on uh, the out hero circle whatever this ngo is it is norwood it's pontera silver ferns farms Waikato Incorporation, LIC, Chalk and Talk, Plant and Food Research, Food HQ, Carfields, Skills Corp, Zespri, Pamu, Neva, EPA, Fenwick, Landcare Research. Now, I have not received a single email, and I am part of at least two of these about the fact that, hey, have a look at this. This is what we've planned. We are part of the leadership group, and this is what you need to do. And this is what is heading for you because this is what we have decided for you. Nothing. Zilch. Oh, absolutely. And this is why I talk about how, um, I have to say, farmers have become comfortably numb uh, because they trust these people. Um, and, of course, um, you've lost ownership, haven't you? You've lost ownership of your organizations because you haven't taken enough interest into what's what's happening within those organizations. So, you know, we've this. There'll have to be, as I said last week, the big resets. This sort of stuff. That's what's got to happen. There's got to be a reset. I mean, I see something at the bottom of the ATS Circle stuff. Value Reporting Foundation um, is a global nonprofit organisation that offers a comprehensive suite of resources designed to help businesses and investors develop a shared understanding of enterprise value. How it's created. Stop telling businesses how to suck eggs. Businesses Stop know. telling me you are a non-profit. There is yeah. money following this. Yeah, yeah. You just, it's wearisome, this stuff. Um, yeah, the United Nations Global Compact is a non-binding non United Nations pact to encourage businesses and firms worldwide to adopt sustainability, sustainable and socially responsible policies and to report on their implementation. Yeah, there's the straitjacket just right there. Let business be business. And, you know, I hope to be, I think I make ethical purchases. I don't like the way perhaps some, I can't give you an example right now, but if I don't like a company, I don't buy from them. Mm. Um, so, yeah, look, this telling people how to suck eggs really gets up my nose. So it's people looking for a niche. They've been given one because legislation says 
there's one there. You can't blame them. You've got to blame the governors of the country. And you've got to realize this is this is global. Be it this earnest young man who's you know thinks he's doing fabulous work at Akira, going on to the World Economic mm. Forum, going mm. on to the U.S. and the Obama Foundation, and all of this. This is everywhere. And uh, Don, in fact, talking about the U.S., I think it's time to introduce our guest for today. Yeah, well, it, we did uh, earlier today, uh, earlier in the weekend, actually interview. Um, Dr. Ralph B. Alexander, a physicist who lives in California, but he's Oxford trained, and he's given uh, or written plentifully about um, different outputs of science over over media, effectively over over time. So, one one thing we should focus on here. Sorry, I'm making a dog's breakfast of this. Um, we should say that he has put out some papers recently about the media of catastrophic events, you know, weather events. And he's challenged that, whether it's accurate. And of course, all he's had to do is go back in history, like Ian Wishart did, and find that it's um, been very selective. And in fact, there's nothing unique really going on in the world, apart from a slight signal on a bit of warming. So um, yeah, Ralph gave us an hour of his time, and he was very generous with that. And he covered a lot more topics than that as well. So yeah, sit back and listen to Ralph. He was he was really entertaining. 2057. If you want to text us, email us at inbox at the rate reality radio. We'll be back after a break with our interview with the good professor from California. Thank you for joining us this morning.
against the damn machine. No, there ain't no fighter in the food. No more rocking in those free world shoes. All the high-strung Neil Young wannabes. Yeah, their silence has been deafening. All the suits lick the boots of the government. What they Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back, listeners, to RCR Greenwashed with Jaspreet and Don. Um, clearly, Jaspreet's the one with the dulcet tones, and I'm the one with the droll farming tone. So, um, you know, we welcome your feedback on uh, 2057 or email at inbox at realitycheck.radio. Um, and following on from a lot of our interviews in recent months, where we're trying to really get to the nub of and the truth about climate and weather and the reporting of it in mainstream media, we're very honoured today to have Dr. Ralph B. Alexander, who is a physicist. Um, he's a prolific author. He's uh, been educated in Australia and Oxford. And he spent a large chunk of his career in Europe, Australia, and United States, where he resides now in California. But he was also a professor at Wayne State University in Detroit, so he knows all about living in a cold area as well. So welcome to RCR Greenwash, Ralph. I hope we can call you Ralph through this interview. Yes, thank you, John. We've we've read... Glad to be here. Fantastic. We've read uh, a fair bit of your output, and you certainly are a prolific writer, you've certainly uh, taken a bit of stick from um, perhaps what what I might say the opposite opposing side, uh, yes. the mainstream media side. So anyone that stands tall uh, against um, or stands tall for the truth is, in my books, a good man. So let's, let's start with, um, so, you know, your background a bit more than I've explained it and why you've um, decided to uh, be such a writer and and, an, and a um, a truth teller. Why have you decided to get to this point? Yes, uh, and I'd be happy to do so. Let, let me preface that, though, with <clears throat> one remark about my background. I was educated at a school a you know, private school in Perth, Western Australia, which was largely populated by sons of farmers. 
I was I was there as a day student, but most of the students were boarders from the from the country. And so I grew up getting to know, in fact, I stayed on one or two farms myself, um, getting to know farmers and the farming community. And that's one of the reasons I'm particularly upset about what's going on in agriculture at the moment, not just in your country, New Zealand, but in the Netherlands, in Ireland. Um, anyway, let me hear. Yeah. Let me come back uh, to that. Um, you, you, um, I forget now. What you, you, you? We, we, we sort of wondered what, what, in, oh, yes, yes, what, yes. what, 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 yes. what got you into it? Yeah. Yes. Uh, this goes back to Wayne State University that you mentioned. Um, I taught there for about seven years and then left to go into the business world but because i still had a yearning to teach um i occasionally taught um classes not in physics well yes um astronomy but on other topics too one of which interestingly enough was ecology and the textbook for one of those classes had a chapter a section on global warming. This was 20, 25 years ago. But even then, the whole thrust of the um, article, the, the chapter, was that uh, this is a human-caused problem. And there was no... This was supposed to be part of a, a, a course on learning about science and the scientific method which, as you know, involves observation, involves testing and being sceptical. But this whole chapter was written um, as though there were no debate. In Al Gore's words at the time, the science is settled. Well, for a politician to say that is one thing, but for a textbook, for a university course to say the same thing, I found rather shocking. So. <clears throat> After that, I began uh, looking into um, the IPCC reports. And in fact, I read, um, I won't say I read the whole report, but I read about a thousand pages of the, yeah, I think it was the third or fourth report at that time, the, the, the section uh, called on, on physical science. And what, what I found is the more and more I read, the more and more sceptical I became of the narrative. And that's really what uh, where all this started. After I had finished that exercise, I embarked on writing my first book, which was uh, titled Global Warming, False Alarm. And that's, that was published, uh, the first edition was published in 2009. So ever since, uh, you know, that's been one of my main concerns. Well, it's interesting. I sort of got interested in this field in 1998 uh, when New Zealand was talking about joining the Kyoto Protocol. And uh, initially, uh, when I saw the graphs and, and uh, the, what was then unknown, <laughs> the hockey stick, type yeah, um, graphs. So I I thought that didn't seem right, but I'm I'm a layman. I didn't know uh, what I was looking at, but I was hoping that 
honesty and integrity would come to the fore. Uh, in 2003, there was a rally in New Zealand that farmers railed against the um, fight. You know, it was a, called the fight against ridiculous taxes. It was a methane tax that was going to go on farmers. Um, so we beat that back. Uh, but it was only about 2010-11 when really became aware that there had been corruption uh, and uh, the man hockey stick um, sort of made mainstream. It's uh, interesting to me that this uh, opposition in New Zealand goes back 20 years. Yeah, well, it, it, when I was the president of Federated Farmers and even before that, it was the dominant thing that I talked about every week. And I wondered why I couldn't make any traction with even politicians, let alone uh, officials. And clearly they didn't want to understand that there was um, some issue to see here. You know, there was some corruption going on. So when it became aware, uh, we became aware that there was some meddling in the in those graphs and, and the presentation of data, nothing changed. We're still living in the past in New Zealand with all that history and knowledge we we haven't we haven't fixed it, but but anyway, Ralph, we we're probably going far too fast here. Uh, we need to sort of settle into um, more of your books and and you know, while you wrote that book in two thousand and nine, um, you've also had lots of other sort of uh, reason to investigate the climate and the output of things such as. Um, the hamming up in recent times of catastrophic events in the world. And I'll preface this by reading a, a story that I've just got off um, the internet from Michael R. Bloomberg. Uh, September 15, 2022, to, Dr., to Mr. Klaus Knott, Chair of the Financial Stability Board, Bank for International Settlements. And he says uh, in his report of the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, he says, while global ambition to address climate change has increased over the last five years, recent extreme weather events around the world have amplified the need for even greater concerted action, faster uh, progress and faster progress. It is encouraging to see that the consideration of the implications of climate change has become far more mainstream throughout the financial markets since 2017, and that an increasing number of companies are publicly committing to net zero emission transition plans. Now, that links into what instigated this interview. Last week, I happened upon a document from the Global Warming uh, Policy Foundation that's a draft of what you're about to present in, yeah. later in the month uh, called uh, let me get this. I think I've probably lost it now in my... I think it's right the truth about... Yeah, yeah. the truth about weather extremes. Weather. And 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 a few months ago, we had an output that we read, Jasper and I, from Roger, Roger Pialki Jr. on a similar vein. And I thought uh, we would sort of investigate this further because clearly you don't have to be... Um, uh, too far if mainstream media are bombarding us with constant catastrophic unprecedented um events and michael jane bloomberg's letter here to the um financial stability board uh sort of suggests that businesses are donkey deep in this stuff they they really do believe everything that you've actually now challenged 
uh, as being a bit overstated or a lot overstated. So can we go through this about the truth about weather extremes, whether it's heat waves, floods, tornadoes, hurricanes? What did, yes. what did you find? I, what did you find? means Roger, Roger Pelkey's main interest, of, as you know, has been hurricanes. But when you look at all these areas, even heat waves, heat waves, hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, droughts, um, even cold uh, spells, there's no actual evidence that they're on the rise. But, of course, the popular perception is exactly the opposite. You know, the media constantly um, hypes any extreme event of any magnitude, big or small, you know, as if this was something that had never happened uh, before in history before. I think that there is one, one reason, I think, for this. I mean, there are a number of reasons. One of the reasons, I think, is simply communication technology. I mean, we live in an age where, thanks to the internet and smartphones, any event that occurs anywhere in the world, even in a remote area, is instantly um, conveyed to just about the whole of the, the world's population. And that's given us a distorted view of, you know, I think the, the media, unfortunately, have fallen into this trap. It's given us a distorted view of the importance or significance of any particular uh, event. I, I've, I've actually you mentioned the report that uh, I'm writing for the Global Warming Policy Foundation. It's actually the fourth um, report on the same topic that I've written for them in the last um, three or four years. And I've gotten very frustrated by the lack of response. I mean, it's almost as if the world collectively just uh, gives a big yawn mm. <laughs> when something like this appears. So what I did in the, in the first three reports, I presented a lot of data, graphs, um, and then I started thinking, well, maybe, 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 to me as a scientist, graphs are important. You know, I, I like graphs. Scientists like graphs because they can read a lot of information from them. But then, then I started thinking, well, maybe people who are not scientists or trained as scientists don't see, you know, information presented that way the same. And so what I, embarked on in this current report was a comparison um, of basically of weather extremes today with those of the past, let's say 100 years ago. I mean, we only have good weather records going back 100, 150 years. And I spent some time, quite a lot of time, in fact, looking at newspaper archives and digging out articles that sounded just like anything written today <laughs> um, about heat waves, hurricanes, floods, and how terrible these were and unprecedented, which is the favorite word of our times. That word was used in the 1930s. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? We 
you just said that it's the messaging. Would you believe, uh, Ralph, in New Zealand, the mainstream media has now gone to the stage. The other day, there was a sole issue about crime, and there's too much crime. We had a journalist, come on, mainstream, you know, primetime TV, and say with a straight face, there's actually not more crime. It's just being reported too often. So when it suits them, it is crime yes. being reported too often. Otherwise, there's no increased crime. The retailers here in New Zealand would beg to differ, but no one listens. In, ca- yeah. in fact, if you even catch somebody these days, yesterday out here, our justice system declared that someone who'd been found with arms and ammunition was actually had a breach of the human rights and were racially profiled and it can't be done. So this is a sort of nonsense, a sort of environment we deal in. And uh, I, I found it hilarious. So, And what you said, that you troll through archives there in the US. And so we've had a journalist in New Zealand, a very good uh, investigative journalist, Ian Wishart, do exactly that. Earlier this year, New Zealand was hit by a cyclone, Cyclone Gabriel, and we've had widespread destruction. And it was on the news, as it should be. We, we actually have had, we were hammered certain areas. But when it was said unprecedented, Ian Wishart went through the archives and he proved that... Uh, about 130 odd years ago, we were being hit by one of those every 10 years. He went through ship captain's records and so on. But yeah, it it, it is amazing, Don, isn't it, how the world across, the story is the same? Yes, yes. Uh, I, I think that's a, a very valid point. Um, another aspect, I mentioned this not in the report, but in blog post I wrote recently, there are concerted efforts in the media to amplify um, this narrative that global warming is all our fault, all comes from human emissions of carbon dioxide. Um, I I can't remember the the name of the organisation now, but this big organisation that funds many of the mass media and they fund them, well, supposedly to write the truth about climate change, to, to be to write, you know, to be honest in reporting, but in fact, um, to follow, um, promote the narrative, mm. just you know, more of the same. There's even with regard to extreme weather. I even came across a page on one of the, on this organization's website, setting out tips for journalists to write about the increase in uh, magnitude and frequency of extreme weather events. Right there, I mean, it's hard. It's hard to compete against uh, that sort of thing. I mean, you, Ralph, you said you've, uh, you know, studied at Oxford. Now, Oxford University itself, it has an Oxford Climate Journalism Network. Imagine. Uh, And, you know, when I was uh, looking up uh, details of your work, I came across this and it it blew me away. What does that even mean? Oxford Climate Journalism Network. You can see that it is there. We are all being pigeonholed into a certain narrative. So too much yes. of crime is not there. It's just too much of reporting. But climate, of course, we are, we are all doomed to fail there. Uh, over the last year, somewhere, New Zealand, and we see more and more of our scientists having tie-ups with Californian institutes. 
And this was preceded last year by our prime minister who went to California. And there was a memorandum of uh, understanding signed. And this one, this particular this one. Was, uh, this was um, Jacinda or her successor? Yeah. No, it was Jacinda. This was last July. So she went and she met Gavin Newsom. And at that point, we signed it in San Francisco, May 27th last year. And uh, we sort of agreed the memorandum of understanding begins saying that California is more ambitious. We've only, New Zealand is only saying we'll be climbing at zero by 2050. California has declared it will be by 2045. And yes. there is a lot that we can do here together. It was signed by Jared Bloomfield on behalf of California, who was that time was you know, head of your, I think, EPA, Environmental Protection Authority. And he has now moved on. So he's left the government tenure in California and moved on to a $3.5 billion managing a climate fund run by Steve Jobs' uh, widow. So, and uh, he was, he's, he's come out from United Nations in 2005. He was part of the environment program in the US. It's amazing how these same people, you, you follow them and you follow the money. Yes. That's, I keep telling, you know, anyone when you start debating climate science, unless you start talking money to me, I am not debating this. We need to see which way the money went before right. anything else. You're right. Uh, two, two thoughts. One is some of those same people behind that are also sponsors of the organization whose name I can't remember that is mm -hmm. funding this uh, journalistic uh, effort. They, they have uh, you know, hundreds of, 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 of newspapers and TV um, networks on their, on their list. Uh, the other thought is going back to something Don mentioned a few minutes ago, this um, emphasis on ESG um, in the business world. Um, one of the things I've noted recently, yes, there was a big um, movement in that direction two or three years ago, but now I'm, uh, you must have seen this too. There seems to be a reaction against it. And even um, Larry Fink, who's the CEO of BlackRock um, Investments, worth, you know, the company worth an enormous uh, billions worth of billions, uh, literally. Yep. investment funds, he's pulled back and he's saying, no, maybe, maybe we shouldn't. Uh, attach too much importance to a company's attention to this climate area after all. I, I, I find that encouraging. Well, I found it encouraging too, because I read the same thing, um, Ralph, but what I also read was um, some new words following, uh, and words are what matter in all of this. And yes. I think um, Mr. Fink was um, being a little disingenuous, to be honest, because I think he tried um, to use uh, influencing, influencing words in a different manner, like um, oversight. And I think he even may have used the word influential oversight. So the ambition's still there to try and pigeonhole companies into reporting this stuff. And of course, as a hedge fund manager, the, the wealth creation that's heading their way is huge. Um, as he said in a recent um, uh, podcast that I saw, 
Oh, no, it was actually a video I saw that he uh, he admitted that capitalists love authoritarian or totalitarian governments. It makes their job a whole lot easier. And, of course, um, you know, there's a fair bit of Western governance at the moment that you would argue is hardly, um, hardly open and transparent. But anyway, hey, let's move on from that. Um, He's talking... I think he is. I think he is. And as as I've learned in my life, um, if if people that there's what and Jasper and I often talk about the nudge units uh, around the world, um, that's a certain sort of bunch of influences. And we know that if they say X, they actually really mean Y. Um, they mean the opposite. Um, so we've learned to be cynical. And I know that's a sad approach to life, perhaps, but um, we believe in sim- simplicity and truth, and that's why we have people like you on, because you do put stuff out in a way that's um, lay acceptable as well. As well as you're talking it to your peers, um, it's 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 good for us as well. And so can we go right back, though, to the signs that came out for the heat waves, the floods, the droughts, the hurricanes yeah. and wildfires and the like? The way I read it, the IPCC knows about all this. Um, they have admitted that there is a sign for a slight warming uh, coming through, but all the rest are as you write. But why is it in the summary for policymakers and uh, and the like, no one picks that up? Why is it that you think that our um, advisors to our governments won't pick up what the IC- IPCC even says as is accurate that you have confirmed um, as useful, because as Jasper has just told you, we had this cyclone earlier this year. We've had more rain events since. We've had quite severe winds in recent weeks. And oh, all these things are unprecedented. We've got airlines now f- sort of you know, saying we're going to cancel a flight because it's a bit windy in, in our city. Um, yeah, our city, I've flown into the city hundreds of times in some severe winds where the plane's going sideways. Now it's, oh, no, you can't do that. Uh we, we talk about atmospheric rivers. You know, these are these cyclones. They're atmospheric rivers. Um, in California. <laughs> so why is it that, um, you know, you probably can't answer that, so I'll ask a different question. No, I, I, it's, I, I, it's, I just can because um, you're, you're talking about the IPCC. Yeah. The real problem is the way that the IPCC is structured. Uh, in principle, as you know, it's a scientific body, a couple of thousand scientists from around the world who pool their collective um, research on the climate. The problem is, though, it's not just scientific, it's more political than scientific. And that's where the problem comes in, because frequently the scientific portion um of an IPCC report, which is like the first first part, and then there are two other parts which come after that. The scientific portion is often reasonably scientific. In other words, statements are qualified, um, there's doubt expressed, and, and there's a fairly honest attempt, you know, to present the science as it exists. But then what happens is the government uh, and NGO bureaucrats are also part of the IPCC. Um, 
They don't number maybe as many, but there must be hundreds of them. And they're the people that determine what gets said in the summary. They, they edit everything. And one of the reasons that infamous hockey stick turned up again, I was uh, you know, really disappointed to see in the most recent report is that the uh, bureaucrats wanted it in there. It wasn't so much that the science had changed. Um, I mean, yes, there are some climate activists among scientists, um, but they're also skeptics. Um, but all of a sudden this appears, and that's all that's presented to the to the public. So it's more, I said, it's much more political what, what the IPCC is on record as saying than what's really in the reports. Yeah, there, like there are things in the reports that uh, you know can be questioned. Yeah, it is, it is hard to believe that an amalgam of ideas from hundreds, if not thousands, of scientists could come out and be so corrupted, and yet people accept it um, because the people that want it accepted are in the majority and in the pay of somebody else, no doubt. Um, it It's... So can we talk about the 97% consensus then? Because I think that all links in. What's your uh, understanding of the 97% consensus uh, um, often used line? How relevant is that? I mean, clearly it's relevant to mainstream media because that's all they talk about and politicians. Well, in, in reality, it's irrelevant because it's wrong. Um, in, in my book, I set out the, the reasons for that. It, it came from many uh, sources, but the main source was a paper um, by two gentlemen, uh, one of whom is not a scientist, I think is a psychologist. And what they did is they looked at something like 12,000 scientific papers or the abstracts of them. And uh, on the basis of a question that they asked, concluded that 97% of the 12,000 um, believed in, in, the, in the climate change narrative. But when you actually look at the numbers, um, several, uh, so I've forgotten the exact numbers, but um, the ex several thousand, let's say four or 5,000, didn't express any opinion at all, one way or the other in the abstract. <laughs> Once you subtract off those, the picture changes drastically. And depending on, you know, on how you interpret some of the numbers, the actual number is between, I estimated, between 33% and 63% of all those 12,000 authors believe. So the consensus may well be less than 50%. And in my experience, it is. Many people, I mean, I, I feel sorry for, for researchers in climate science because most of their funding comes with strings attached. Yeah. And the, the string is that you better support the narrative or you won't get any more money. That's an unfortunate fact. And so a lot of young um, people, young climate scientists, don't buck 
the, the system because they know if they do, they won't get promoted or they won't get more research f- funding. On the worst case, they'll get fired. And that's happened, uh, sad to say, at least three or four times around the world. People have actually been fired. Peter Ritt, I believe you had on the program before. He, he's one of them. Mm. Woof was fired from his academic position because he dared to question the uh, authority. Well, and in that case, the authority was um, so well-funded and so good at putting its hand out for so much money from the Australian taxpayers that, uh, yeah, anyone that challenged the use of that money was was fair game. And sadly, um, well, yeah, it's been exposed, but still the funding goes on for 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 the um, Great Barrier Reef survival mechanisms. But it's it's a common thread, Ralph. This is a common thread. We have interviewed now perhaps dozens of people like yourself uh, from a variety of backgrounds, though, and the common thread is this funding mechanism. And if you, the people that stand up are generally retired scientists who do not have to rely on the payment, don't have to rely on a payment to keep themselves going after retirement. So... It's a sad indictment on us, a sad indictment on mainstream media and politicians who have bought into um, the constant misinformation and disinformation campaign of climate alarmism. And you write in this paper uh, that is a draft, I admit to uh, sort of suggest again to, to listeners, you say the constant repetition of a false belief can over time create the illusion of truth a phenomenon well-known to psychologists and one exploited by propagandists. Now, I remember talking about this as a layman 20 years ago, but still it's very hard to get people to, once this psychological operation has been done on people, it's very hard to swing them back. Um, How are we going to do this? I mean, this is one step at a time with this interview, but um, how can we do it quickly? Yeah, I, I... I really wish I knew the answer to that, and I despair sometimes of, you know, ever changing anyone's mind. But as you say, I think it has to be done one one mind at a time. Um, as I also said in the same, same report, I'm not sure if I'll leave the, the sentence in there, this um, fact that, you know, a lie can be very easily propagated was the... You know, the famous example, infamous example, of course, is uh, Joseph Goebbels, the uh, Nazi propagandist. Um, the, um, the, there's another expression, I'm sure you've heard it too, that um, I, th- I think sometimes attributed to Winston Churchill, that um, by, the t- by the time a lie travels halfway around the world, the truth hasn't even got its pants on. <laughs> and of course, with uh, with the internet and uh, smartphones, as you talk about about your in your in your papers, uh, that the dissemination of um, of of information is so easy. It doesn't matter whether it's true or false; it just gets out there very quickly. And and of course, gullible people pick it up. And I, I have to admit, I've been gullible to information flows in my cell phones uh, and, and, and internet over time. But hopefully um, most of us can get to a point where uh, the truth is 
paramount and um, more obvious. And, uh, and, you know, that's my motto is simplicity and truth. And as a layman, if I can't see it clearly in an abstract or a paragraph, uh, if someone can't express it simply, then the masses aren't going to accept it. Uh, it has to be found out in a simple fashion by everyone to, to buy into it. Currently, we're in an election cycle here, Ralph, and um, the current posturing by the different parties, it's hard to know who can speak out of both sides of the mouth their best. I mean, they're all doing it. And how does how do voters um, pick up the truth? How do they know what's right and wrong when, and in fact, yeah, there's 50-50 stories coming out all the time. And um, as I said, people seem to speak out both sides of the mouth. That's an opinion. Let's move on. Well, we've got some other stuff we'd like to talk about with you. Um, you've written books uh, covering a variety of um, topics, not just um, on climate. Uh, you've written uh, books that, for instance, talk about the continental drift or um, uh, creationism, evolution. Yes. And yeah, you know, that fascinates me, the, the evolution um, story. So yeah, do you want to expand a little bit on what you've what you've deduced in your research and writings? What, what um, um, Jasper mentioned this before, I covered about six topics in that book. As Don mentioned, the first was continental drift, then was evolution, um, dietary fat, global warming, vaccination, and genetically modified foods. And what <clears throat> what I was trying to do was to, well, I started with continental drift because I felt that was a one of many, not the only, but one of many classical examples of a scientific consensus that turned out to be wrong. In that case, the consensus was that uh, the continents had never moved. They were fixed in place and they'd always been that way. That was the belief at the beginning of the 20th century among um, geologists. Then along comes this upstart, um, Wegener, um, who proposes <laughs> this radical theory that that's not the case at all, that the continents were once in very different places. That was in 1912. He was rather like global warming skeptics today. He was viciously attacked. He was denigrated. Um, he became very depressed at one stage about it. Um, and his ideas were totally rejected by the establishment. And it wasn't until the 1960s, thanks to some actual scientific evidence measurements made on the seafloor um, of the ocean ridges and, and how they were uh, moving, that he was vindicated. But I say that took about 50 years. Of an older example in history, of course, this is talked about often, is Galileo, who was as you know, it's one of the most famous physicists of all time, and you know the, the ranks of Isaac Newton and um, Stephen Hawking, and Galileo. He didn't actually propose it himself, but he supported the view of a colleague 
called Copernicus um, that it was not the sun that revolved around the earth, but the earth that revolved around the sun. Well, that was totally against the teaching of the church at that time. And it's not so much a religious issue because the church at that time was was like the modern-day university. Um, you know, m- most uh, intellectuals and academics would find a place somewhere in, 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 the, in the church. And Galileo was, as you know, um, almost um, burnt at the stake. It was only because he was as famous as he was. Uh, he, he wrote a book, basically, um, against the uh, papal, the official papal policy, and uh, was called before the Spanish Inquisition, or the Inquisition, um, had he not been so so well known, I say he he would have been sentenced to death. Instead, he was sentenced to house arrest for the uh, the rest of his life. Same thing, and his book, that particular book, um, was not. Um, I was going to say exonerated, not not approved by the Catholic Church until the eighteen hundreds. So that's another example. Um, then. Moving on from continental drift to evolution, um, I felt that that was also a good example of uh, a well, a a new idea. In that case, it was really the reverse of the global warming picture. It was a new idea. Um, Charles Darwin's um, book on uh, forget what it was called now. On anyway proposing his theory of uh, evolution. The belief at the time, on, on as you know, I mean, this is religion versus science. Um, the belief of the church, in this case, it wasn't the Catholic Church, it was the uh, Church of England, was, was dominant. And that was that, of course, we were created in whatever the year was, 4004 B.C., and um, that was it. That was the creation, and that was the beginning of all life on Earth, animals, humans, everything else. And, of course, evolution painted a very different picture and suggested that uh, you know our origins went back much further, as we know now from science, from you know, some billions of years. But, again, um, Darwin's ideas were not accepted in his lifetime and it took 30, 40 years um, for, for that. Likewise, with with, um, with dietary fat, there, there was a um, a belief in the, up until fairly recently, that fat, just you know, quote unquote, in, in the diet is a bad thing. Well, yes. Some fats are, as we know now, some fats are not. They're very beneficial. Um, and there was a fellow called, um, yeah, I can't, can't think of his name either, Keyes, Ansel Keyes, who uh, promoted that idea in the 1950s and 1960s against an ever-increasing body of actual evidence that that was not the case. 
um, that it didn't raise cholesterol levels, for example. Then global warming, vaccination, <laughs> of course, has become a very touchy subject uh, after the, the pandemic. Um, but once again, uh, you know, there there, there are a strong movement. Well, vaccination, um, modern-day vaccination, was conceived by uh, an English um, scientist, Jenner, uh, Edward Jenner, in, I think, the 19th, early 19th century, and he was the first to, to uh, verify or to propose that, you know, um, injecting the human body with a, in his case, I think a live virus could actually act as a defence against future attack from that virus. I think it was tuberculosis um, involved in his discovery. But once, in this case, it wasn't the scientific community that was so vehemently opposed to his discovery. It was the lay public. Uh, and there arose, which has survived to the present day, the anti-vax, the anti-vaccination movement, which became very strong. Um, there was a celebrated case of, um, let me, trying to, trying to think, um, but with Edward Jenner, I remember, Dr. Alexander, it was, I think, milkmaids who were not getting this particular disease. Smallpox. A smallpox, yeah, mm. smallpox. Yes. And that's that's where it came from. But there was empirical evidence, and yeah. Yeah, that, that was, in fact, absolutely correct. That was the ob his observation mm. uh, that there must be something <laughs> yes. about their environment that, um, that led to it. But... I was moving on a century or so. Um, there was an English doctor. Um, this, who turned out to be a charlatan um, who claimed that um, vaccination with the tetanus DPT uh, vaccine was detrimental um, and could cause all sorts of you know terrible effects. And he published several papers supposedly presenting evidence. Mm. And it turned out, well, he he, he was um, eventually debunked and had to retract um, many of his papers. So that was kind of a reverse example. And then again with with, with GMOs. So what, what I'm trying to say here is that <clears throat> there's often a conflict between a new idea or even an old idea, a consensus, um, and the popular view. And some of the examples in, in, in the book, you know, present one side and some some the other. Yeah. And I, and I sorry, Jasper, I was going to say, and that's why I think um, if anything, uh, the rational optimist, uh, the evolution of ideas and things like um, Lord Matt Ridley has written that I've read, 
they taught me to have a far wider and open mind to things than I had had before. And I think that perhaps is a problem with society in general. Uh, if you're being bombarded by mainstream media on one side or and politicians and, and, and bureaucrats, it's very hard to, um, um, you know, the, 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 the idea of um, a person's brain is to say, oh, they're telling me they're paid to tell hopefully the truth. Mm. We should believe them. It's very hard to um, sort of say, well, hmm, that doesn't make sense. Uh, we need to um, investigate further. And that's the problem we've got, I think. So it's the constant, mm -hmm. the constant drip of water of a story has got through and um, drilled holes in our brains. And we just aren't... Um, as, as in the majority of the population willing to accept there could be something different. Um, and sorry, and for someone, someone like me, it is all these networks that are being set up constantly. If it was, as Donnie said, if it was that simple, one paragraph, a page, one textbook would be enough. You wouldn't need to, you know, put all these journalism networks. I think one of that is covering climate now, which has uh, links all over the world. We have six New Zealand uh, media houses in that particular one. And literally, hours, hours back, as we talk, there came this uh, headline from Reuters and others saying that religious leaders may be the key to breaking climate action deadlock, the poll suggests. The survey published the same day that Pope Francis said no one can ignore climate change found that stronger religious convictions often paired with increased doubt in climate change. But again, you know, it is it is uh, strikes me, you know, we're talking about Galileo and him being uh, hung in quarter, figuratively speaking. This is now Pope, the Pope who I thought would stay out of all of this. Pope Francis yeah. has released his latest papal le letter rebuking the irresponsible lifestyle of, and keyword, Westerners. Irresponsible lifestyle of Westerners, in quotes, and chastising those who tried to delay the uh, the efforts to address climate change. Now, for me, this is an immediate red flag. You are, you know, you are supposedly a religious leader. You are now teaming up with journalists, doing surveys, and you are referring to one set, Westerners. What's, I mean, I I would think that any any person with an iota of brain in the head would go, hey, let's back up this train a moment. There is something wrong here. Yes, yes. No, I think the uh, the Pope in particular is totally out of his depth. In fact, <laughs> when he wrote his previous encyclical, which I think was 2015, I actually wrote a letter to the Vatican. I never got a reply, of course, uh, <laughs> telling telling him what I you know what I just said, what I thought. I mean, really. I mean, why is it the business of the Pope or the Church or anyone connected with religion to comment on, on it's the same thing as the science and religion to comment on on science. Uh, I will say you've probably seen this yourselves. Uh, he has been vigorously attacked already in the last uh, couple of days. I, I've seen some very strongly worded uh, critiques. But imagine even trying to do such a survey, Ralph, and <laughs> done by this group called the. Pew Research Center survey released last week found that just 44% of American Catholics believe in human-caused climate change, while 29% believe it is due to natural patterns, 13% don't believe the world is warming at all. For me, 
if you have to go to that level of minute to start now polling Catholics and non-Catholics, I'm a Sikh. Tomorrow we might, might be having, you know, atheists and others. This is sheer nonsense. This is someone I trying do. to hang on to, uh, you know, a narrative that is disintegrating and they are throwing their all at it. Yeah, yeah. No, you, you, you're right. I'm talking about numbers and going back to well, what we were <clears throat> discussing a few, few moments ago, the level of disbelief in the climate narrative, I believe, among the general public um, is now above 50%, at least according to, uh, I think it was a Gallup poll. Mm. Yeah, wow. so so there is hope. There is hope. <laughs> and, 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 and I think there will be more hope as the economic fallout of this continues. I, I wonder, Ralphie, we've taken quite a bit of yeah. your time, but I wonder if you could... Have, we could have some remarks from you on how you see the race to net zero in California unfurling in ways around you in which, according to me, I would think they'd be making ordinary people, ordinary Californians' lives uncomfortable, economically harder. But I I am happy to be corrected. Would you let us know what the how the fallout is affecting? I, I think what's going to happen here in the United States is exactly what's happening right now in Europe, specifically Germany, um, and to some extent the UK. People are beginning to realize that all of the, the, yes, if asked do they support the idea that we need to do something about climate change, they'll answer yes. But as soon as they begin to realize how much it's going to cost them, as individuals, the pendulum swings very much in the other direction. I've seen estimates, a lot of people are not willing to pay more than, let's say, $10, $20 a year mm. to take action in to combat climate change if you believe the action will do anything at all. In reality, it's going to cost each individual probably two or, you know, 10 or 100 times more than that. In other words, hundreds or even thousands of, of dollars uh, a year. Um, in, in, in Europe, the big concerns are mandates for electric vehicles and, and for heat pumps, as you probably know. Yep. And... Uh, it's always it's it's already been fairly well demonstrated, and a lot of people are starting to to believe that heat pumps are not a very effective substitute for gas fired or oil fired um, furnaces, burners, and a lot of people, especially the the the, you know, the poorer members of society, are going to freeze. Or, or get ill because the, the, the heat pump doesn't heat your home nearly as well. And that's only if you can afford it in the first place. I mean, they're offering massive subsidies um, on the order of thousands, many thousands, 7,000 pounds to install one of these things, which isn't going to work as well. And... Um, comes with all sorts of other restrictions, like you have to re-insulate your house. 
And it might have to be, you know, there's, there'll come a time when the hungry and the free, freezing, starving will all just need to unite. Yeah. And with, with electric cars, I mean, lots of electric car manufacturers, maybe not um, Elon Musk and Tesla or the Chinese, but a, a lot of them, Volkswagen, I know is one, have a lot of electric vehicles sitting, em- I mean, sit- sitting on lots unsold. So many, in fact, that Volkswagen, I know in particular, has laid off a couple of thousand employees because they they don't need to make any more. <laughs> There's mm. no room to put them. Um, the problem, that's a, it's a different problem with electric vehicles, although it's related. It's that they're so expensive, the average person is simply not able to afford them. No. I know what it's like in New Zealand, but um... uh, we we subsidise them, um, um, Ralph. Uh, there's been some some pretty good discounts given to buying uh, electric cars. They don't pay any road user charges currently, so they get free access to our roads. Um, right. You know, no uh, one takes no one takes into account the um, environmental. Um, the environment used to build an electric car, all the, all the products that have to make a car. Look, the thing that gets me most mostly about all of this is the narrowing down of energy sources to a one-size-fits-all, which is electricity. It's the craziest thing when you're trying to do non-market-based um, futures. It just doesn't make, and pushing people to it, it just doesn't make sense to me. Look, I, I would like to go right back to where we started, and I stopped you early on talking about farming because that's critical to us and and in our in our interactions my emails we which I'd like to share yeah yeah we started this early on um in an email dialogue you did make some reference to um I I made reference to that um Miles Allen and Michelle Kane have uh sort of got into the heads and minds of um some of their farm leaders that they're the best and of the best in terms of um New Zealand's uh, ruminant animals uh we they've got the best science um the happer and van wingarden and co et al stuff isn't quite there um have you got comments to make on you know why why would new zealand farmers be being sort of the poster child for the world when the science doesn't appear to be uh clearly put in front of the public of new zealand let alone um the, the politicians who are imposing these potential taxes on farmers. I mean, I, I didn't say that very well. We've got no, problems. No, We've got problems. What, what, what you're saying, I think it's the travesty. I never knew that uh, methane was already being taxed in, in your country. Well, um, no, it's not. It's not being taxed yet, but it's been pushed oh, and kicked. kicked it's, well, yeah, and maybe uh, it's still being pushed out. I mean, everyone pushes the narrative they're going to tax those damn farmers but they've never been able to get it over the goal line but so now we're being told that if we don't do xyz tax these dirty farmers for their methane and their animals um you will have trade sanctions put upon the country and, and that's also, the, also because they say for us it's a big amount 50 percent right right let, of let, our let, country's emissions yeah let, let, let me give you a few numbers um, I, I recently wrote a blog post on a paper that claimed that um, emissions from agriculture mm. would warm alone 
not from any other source, just from agriculture, we're going to warm the earth by almost uh, a full degree Celsius by, <laughs> um, I think, the, the year 2100. Well, it turns out that that paper and many others um, of, in the same vein are mistaken about some of the basic physics involved. So, so I was going to give you some numbers. The, the actual temperature increase is likely to be about a tenth of that, not one degree Celsius, about 0 0.1 degrees Celsius. Two, two numbers are often thrown out about methane and nitrous oxide, and that is that methane is 25 times more powerful than carbon dioxide in causing global warming. And nitrous oxide is even worse, it's 300 times more. What is never stated is that those numbers actually are correct, but only if you understand why they're correct. Those are numbers per molecule. One molecule of methane has 25 times the warming potential of one molecule of carbon dioxide and likewise for nitrous oxide. But both gases are much less abundant than carbon dioxide, and their rate of, of increase of, of the concentration level is much, much lower. And you have to take that into account. So the, these are the actual numbers that I've got. If you take carbon dioxide as one for warming potential, Mm. Methane over a 20-year period is 83, and nitrous oxide is 273. Now, the rates of increase in, um, for example, we know that carbon dioxide is about 415 parts per million. Methane is only 2, 1.9 and nitrous oxide is even less. But what's important is how fast those numbers are increasing. Um, the number for carbon dioxide, the increase is about 2.3 parts per million per year. We've seen that CO2 goes up. Methane, though, is 7.6 parts per billion. Billion, yep. And nitrous oxide is even less. Now, when you factor all that together, the actual warming potential of methane is about 27% of that for carbon dioxide, and nitrous oxide is about 10%. So even together, both of those gases only contribute roughly a third as much to global warming, if you believe the narrative in the first place. Which of course they don't. <laughs> but if you do, they contribute only a third as much as carbon dioxide. So why should we be culling millions of cows in Ireland, taxing methane from uh, burp, cow burps in New Zealand, <laughs> or um, shutting down farms completely? as they're planning to do in the Netherlands. I mean, it just makes absolutely no sense to me. 
Well, yeah, th thank you for that um, oversight. I mean, of course, we know that uh, water vapour overshadows everything and no one even talks about that. There's one other comment in your email to me, um, and Jasper will be hot about this because as you will have found by this interview so far, it doesn't matter what you uh, are talking about Jasper's researching uh, in the background, and she's she's a dynamo on this stuff. But she's hot on C forty cities. What would you like to comment about C forty cities? Have you you talked about it oh. in an email? And it's probably the last thing we'll talk about in this interview. But um, yeah, what's your uh, what's your take on that? Because Auckland, New Zealand is involved. Yeah, we had a signatory. Fr frankly, I'm just flabbergasted. Uh, one of our cities, San Francisco, has has signed up. Also, I mean, as you, if if you look at their website, it all sounds very noble um, and not particularly harmful or anything to be concerned about. If you dig into the details, though, you find out things like the C40 cities are going to mean giving up meat, eating meat altogether, restricting the number of items of clothing you can buy per year to, like, three. Yeah. Um Restricting the distance, well, the the, num the amount of number of times you can travel, uh, you can take one air flight, say from New Zealand to Europe, once every three years. Um, Fifteen-minute cities, so-called, I believe, are part of the story too. Mm. You can't travel more than fifteen minutes to go anywhere, hospital, see a relative, whatever, without being fined. Um, and there's, there's, there are a couple of other details too, but, uh, I, I'm just shocked that this even exists yeah. and more shocked that these 40 cities have actually signed on to it. But aren't you more, aren't you more shocked that people could write papers uh, and be paid <laughs> to write papers and have conferences and save the planet one step at a time by going to conferences and nudging society towards it? I mean, Ralph, I think it's a it's a really good place to end. We've covered, um, we've we've gone around the world about three times in this interview, and once over lightly is probably never good enough for an academic such as yourself. And uh, we're honoured to have had you on the show. You've clearly had a lifetime in um, academia investigating stuff that um, we all need to know about. And in the end, um, we can only hope that common sense and reason does win the day and that uh, people like you can continue your output, continue to educate people. I, by the way, you do have a blog. You may want to talk about that and may want to alert our listeners to what they can go on to and, and uh, read your output. Um, yes, Don. Yeah, it's been, it's been a pleasure to talk to you both. Um, I only hope, you know, conversations like this do have some impact. Yes. Uh, my, my blog is at uh, science under attack, or one word. Dot com. Yeah, that's that's great, Ralph. Look, as I said, we're honoured to have had you on. We've taken an hour of your time, um, and I'm I know it's the fall in um, in the El Dorado Hills in California where you live. And uh, may you have a um, 
a pleasant day from now on and into the winter that you're about to head into. And I hope that the snow doesn't fall as deeply as it did last year on Lake Tahoe. Yeah. <laughs> well, the same to you, Don. I wish your organisation well and a lot of luck in uh, combating this nonsense. Yeah, Thank thanks you so much. much. Thank you for your time today, Ralph. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Well, wasn't that a um, great expose and interview with uh, with Dr. Alexander? He gives um, a lot of attention to detail. He certainly was very cautious on, on his output. Um, so there was some hesitancy, but he was very calculated. There was no extra words. And uh, you know that a person like that is a real academic. They don't like wasting words. So I, I enjoyed his uh, interview. What about you, Jasper? Completely that. And it puts me to shame because I use so many extra words to bring across the same point, which he he is, you know, we could see him across the video, though only the audio goes up on air and you would see how precise You're he was. I, I could learn a thing or two from him. Well, and you do make me look decidedly amateurish. I'm, I'm really embarrassed by the number of extra words that I can put in a sentence. <laughs> uh, anyway, what about this cats and but, dogs thing? What about the yeah, cats and dogs? Talk, talking of extra words, look at them. They've used so many extra words to talk about uh, utter garbage. <laughs> Vegan cats, anyone? It seems your pets... Dogs and cats can be healthy, happy vegans research shows. And this article came out on psychology today on the 5th of october again dogs and cats it says consume at least nine percent of all land animals killed for food seven billion animals annually and this production of dog cat and human food not have they lumped us humans with dogs and cats god almighty the <laughs> this is just going down the gurgler dot is a major cause of the very high greenhouse gas and climate change so uh, yeah. shall we kill moggy Oh, it had to had to come back to climate change. Of course, um, it was fundamental. It was going to get. I've never seen a dingo want to eat, um, you know, gum tree roots, or I've never seen a lion want to eat, uh, yeah, grass. I don't know. There's I've something about this. I've never seen ancient cave paintings uh, with the broccoli and yeah. the salads on them. <laughs> I see elk hunting scenes and mammoth bringing them down those scenes, and so on. So I don't know. Oh, maybe the Pope can um, sort that out for us. What's what's he been doing lately? What's he been doing? Oh gosh, you've got a snippet. I I have a snippet, and every day, just when I think, you know, we have hit, seen the rock bottom of this thing. Now there comes something more there, and this time it is uh, from His Holiness, the Pope. Pope Francis urges the world leaders to act on climate change. And they've actually been surveys done by, believe it or not, this name called Pew Research. And they are seeing how, depending on a religious affiliation, how much do you believe in global warming or not? And uh, Pope Francis has heightened. He says the irreversible harm to the people and planet is underway and the world's most vulnerable are paying the highest price. He took square aim. At the United States, noting that the per capita emissions in the U.S. are twice as high as China and seven times greater than the average in poor countries. So China is being held up as an example. All right. And uh, individual household health are helping, but we need to do more. 
and change the irresponsible lifestyle of the Western world. Oh, I think there's been a good payment into the coffers of the old Vatican. You know, he's he's doing the right thing, doing God's work, doing God's work. We shouldn't be too hard. Hey, as we wrap up this show, um, we're going to hear from Constantin Kisson. And I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's um, done an Oxford Union speech uh, debate. Uh, but I'd love his output, this guy, young guy with a lot of energy and such a clarity of thought and presentation. So sit back and we'll close the show with Constantin Kisson. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. This is goodbye from Don and me. We'll see you on the other side once the elections are done and dusted next Monday. Enjoy the snippet. Why did no one say anything? Have you noticed that things got weird a few years ago? That the world makes less and less sense with every year that goes by? Why did protesters in England, where the police are not armed, shout, hands up, don't shoot, at cops who don't carry guns? Isn't it strange that within the blink of an eye, politicians suddenly became unable to explain what a woman is? A woman can have a penis. <laughs> Nick, I'm not... I don't think we can conduct this debate with, you know... Sorry, have I, I, get I offended this you in some way? No, 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 it's just... <laughs> How is it that societies whose stated goal was a world in which all men are created equal became obsessed with dividing themselves along racial lines? Why do multinational corporations stick rainbow flags everywhere? Except in Saudi Arabia, obviously. Do you remember when everyone lost their shit because Donald Trump said, we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked, and circumventing the line of people who are waiting patiently, diligently, and lawfully to become immigrants in this country? You probably don't, because it wasn't President Trump that said it. It was President Obama. And no one lost their shit because up until three minutes ago, everyone, left and right, understood that countries need borders. And yet, here we are in 2023, where the definition of a woman is now controversial, people breaking into our country illegally is conflated with normal lawful immigration, and the weird obsession with race just won't go away. And what's strange about it is that if you talk to most people, no one wanted this. So how did it happen? And why did no one say anything? Around 2013-2014, social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook began to take off. Virtually overnight, the mainstream media began to publish article after article about racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, etc. And this didn't just happen in Britain and America. It happened in places as far and wide as Nigeria, Japan, Cuba, the Philippines, Qatar and Brazil. The investor Charlie Munger, who's Warren Buffett's right-hand man, said, Show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcome. What no one realized at the time is that social media rewards certain types of communication. And whatever you reward, you get more of. Social media rewards complaining, outrage and victimhood. So it produces complaints, outrage, porn and victims. Why did no one say anything? Well, first of all, some people tried to. JK Rowling said something and went from celebrated author to demonized hate figure. Barry Weiss, a journalist at the New York Times said something. She's no longer at the New York Times. Clinical psychologist Jordan Peterson said something, and now they're trying to take his license to practice away. And despite their efforts, little change as institution after institution succumbed to the craziness. That in itself is weird. I often found myself naively thinking that all it takes is one more brave, principled and articulate individual to stand up and say something and it would all be over. Instead, 
one after another, these people lost jobs, opportunities and careers. It's going on right now with Rasheen Murphy who dared to suggest that puberty blockers are a bad idea. The BBC responded by removing her work from their radio lineup. This is despite the fact that the Tavistock Clinic, which administered these puberty blockers, was shut down after the cash review raised serious concerns about giving these drugs to children. And despite the fact that most people in both Britain and America do not support puberty blockers, gender reassignment surgery, the inclusion of trans women in women's sports, and so on. In other words, prominent, respected and successful people who speak the truth are punished for saying what most of their fellow citizens believe. Does that make any sense to you? To anyone? So what's going on? People will often use clever sounding phrases like institutional capture to explain it. But what does that mean exactly? The BBC wasn't physically overrun by a barbarian horde. And I can tell you from personal experience that not everyone at these institutions agrees with what's happening. I once took part in a debate on the BBC in preparation for which I had a call with the producer. In the conversation, she told me how alarmed she herself was by what was going on, but she refused to speak up for herself. Part of this is groupthink, which is when people agree to go along with something because they prioritize harmony within the group over making the right decision. They keep quiet because they know the majority disagree with them and they don't want to be the black sheep of the group. But a related and even more interesting phenomenon is the Abilene Paradox. The term was introduced by management expert Jeremy Harvey in the 1970s. It's based on a story he used to tell about a family which is sitting around comfortably playing dominoes in the heat when one of them suggests taking a long trip to Abilene, Texas for dinner. Thinking that's what everyone wants, the individual family members all agree to go. It is only when they return from a hot, dusty, unpleasant trip that they gradually realize that none of them actually wanted to go. They went along not because they were in the minority, but because they all thought they were in the minority. But we are not in the minority. Those of us who believe that children can't consent to serious medical interventions, the rational debate is better than name-calling, that countries need borders, that freedom of expression is better than censorship, we're in the majority. That's why we need the J.K. Rowling's, Barry Weiss's and Jordan Peterson's of the world. They shatter the illusion of consensus and give us a fighting chance against the tyranny of the minority. And this is why the way to end cancel culture is to embrace the cancelled, to make sure that people who speak are rewarded for it, and to encourage others to say enough.